Peter's the one who says and we're live, but apparently he's having some technical issues and I don't want to wait too long because our first guest is here and, and I'm excited about that. So, uh, yeah, they're having some technical issues. So I'm going to start. Um, welcome. It is Monday, Tuesday. Well, it's Monday's generational change that we're doing on Tuesdays is 4th of July. That's why I'm used to saying that. So it's generational change. It's Tuesday. I'm Jen. Peter's not here. Hopefully he'll come in any minute now. And um, we have a really good uh, show happening today. So we're going to be talking first with uh, Senator Gustavo Rivera. He is a New York State senator and is the person who is sponsoring the New York Health Act. And he's been on the show before. But, you know, right now, obviously, we're, we're seeing more and more rights diminish. So I want to check in and see, like, how that fight is going. And then after that, we're going to be talking with the Vanguard guys and just, you know, we haven't had them on in a while and just seeing what's up with those guys. It's always a fun conversation. So that's where we're going to that's where we're headed. And uh, I see there's already comments. Jesse Ventura, 2024, Marxist bros and generational change. Well, I don't know the Marxist bros. Um, are you talking about like the Marx brothers? <laughs> Sorry. So anyway, I'm going to invite Gustavo on because hopefully, and Peter will join because we have a lot to talk about and I don't want him to be wasting his time. So without any further ado, welcome to Gustavo Rivera. Hi. <laughs> it is not a waste of time to be with you, my friend. So no, oh. no, no wasted time here. Thank you so much. Welcome to Generational Change. It's good to have you back. Um, good to be back. And, and I just want to remind people, we had had recently a healthcare panel and Gustavo was going to be joining us and then was not able to. And we were able to get a really good sub stand in from the state of New York to like talk about what's going on there. But there's nothing as good as the real thing. So I'm glad you were able to be on here now um, because what is the current status? Like what is going on there? Because I think when we first talked with you, it was right after, I want to say, was it before or after Cuomo resigned? After who resigned? I forgot who that is. Uh, no, obviously I didn't, I, I, I don't, I'll be really honest with you. I mean, just the, the, the madness of the NAS, not only a couple of weeks, but a couple of months yeah. Uh, has has scrambled my brain. And this is even on top of uh, of pandemic, post pandemic brain. So I don't remember exactly when it is that we were on, but it is possible if I had a big, big, big smile on my face, it probably was just about the time that Cuomo had resigned. So that's that's how you can tell. Go back on that video. And if I'm like, I don't know, breaking out in dances in my room, <laughs> just randomly. Uh, that's probably that's that's probably around when it was. But where we are right now, well, we uh, in in New York State, we have our our legislative session is from January through June. So technically, we finished our uh, session a couple of weeks ago. Uh, as some folks might know, just this last week, uh, we were called back to uh, to Albany for a special session uh, to deal with uh, both on on issues of gun violence as well as issues of choice. Uh, and we we did we passed a, a slew of bills related to to gun reform uh, and to, to gun violence around gun violence around uh, you know keeping uh, making sure that eighteen year olds can't purchase assault rifles and uh, expansions of background checks a couple of other things like that and then on issues of choice we passed for the first time what we have to do another time before it goes to the public which is a constitutional amendment to enshrine the right of abortion in the New York state constitution. So we passed both of those things, uh, and this week. So as it relates specifically to the New York health act, 
Uh, well, well, first we should talk about this, the, the somewhat sad thing is that we have uh, that Dick Gottfried will no longer be in the assembly. Dick Gottfried is my uh, colleague in the assembly uh, who has been the chair of the health committee for uh, longer than many of the listeners and watchers have been alive. <laughs> he has been in the, he was in the legislature for 52 years, just retired. Wow. And he was a, 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 a great, um, I mean, he was a great mentor to me and he certainly has earned his retirement and he is doing it in his own terms. And even right to the end, he was still an effective legislator. I'm going to miss him in my battles next year. But uh, where we are is that we are working to make sure that we have a couple of good colleagues stay with us, maybe get some better colleagues in the legislature so that we can fight again on next year. That's the short version. Right. Where do you think you are in terms of this governor? I mean, now it's just so it's, you know, you definitely know what you would have expected if Cuomo was sitting there and this even got through. Like, you know, where you know, like how that would go. It was pretty defeatist. Yeah. Um, she seems more like she seems like more of a wild card. Well, the, the first thing that we have to know about Kathy Hoko is she's not a sociopath. That's a very <laughs> low bar, very low bar. But she is not a sociopath, which is a good thing. Uh, but I think that, listen, I think that a wild card is right. There are, there are folks both in her administration as well as her that are open to some things that Cuomo was never open to. And I will give her credit where credit is due. There have been conversations ongoing, uh, even when we've disagreed on some issues that have been far more, uh, it's like, it's, it's somebody that you can actually govern with. Uh, she is obviously not as, as, as progressive or as liberal as some of us. And we're going to have to push her on some things. There's uh, the two things that are kind of a top of mind for me because they're both my pieces of legislation and things I care deeply about. One is the New York Health Act, right, to secure health care to every single New Yorker, regardless of their age or their race or their wealth or their immigration status. And also overdose prevention centers. And these are places that there's two of these, these spots that are operating in the city of New York right now. They're the only ones in the country that are operating uh, and we need them in the rest of the state. These are places where people who use drugs can actually use them under medical supervision. It's a way, it's a, it's a following the modality of harm reduction. Uh, it is something that, that saves lives every single day, gives these folks opportunities to be able to recover because you can't recover if you're not alive. And in the, in, and I mentioned both of those things because there are people within the administration that the governor has chosen who are supportive of both of these. And therefore, you have people inside the administration that can then advise uh, the governor on why they are supportive of these things, why they approach them the way that they do. And I am hoping that this will certainly soften up. And I think that there's some instances in which she has shown that she is open to, to these things, but we haven't gotten any strong commitments still. Um, but she's in the middle of you know re-election, so this is certainly the time to demand such things from her. Uh, and, and I know that I will be that I will be doing that in the months to come. And certainly when I return uh, next year, even though I have a primary, but I mean, yeah, you'll get we'll, yeah. yeah, we'll get there. But, but, but I'm very, I, 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 I think that, that you are correct that she is a wild card. But uh, the one thing that I can underline is that I believe that she's someone that we can get there, that we right. can, you know, she's not a sociopath. She's not going to try to destroy you or your family or everything you've ever lived. Uh, you know, everything you've ever yeah. lived. She's not going to do that. I think it's I think it's very interesting how you bring up 
both um, the health act and the, the drugs and the addiction issues, because that is a health issue and it should have always been a health issue. It's yes, not a criminal issue. It's a health issue. So um, it, to me, those go together very mm-hmm. like, in the same point. Like that's a health concern. Um, you know, so we I think- no, we certainly agree. This is this is a public health crisis and we cannot. I mean, I've said it a billion times. I'm not the only one that said it, but we cannot arrest our way out of an overdose crisis. We just can't. And uh, the proof of that uh, has been uh, the decades that the that the war on drugs has been ongoing. And we've just thought that maybe we just arrest enough people that either use or sell drugs and we're going to get rid of it. We don't. And. And, and harm reduction for folks who might not be familiar with that modality starts with the, with the assumption that you treat people who use drugs as people first. You don't treat them as addicts or fiends or things that you kind of push to the side. All of that, all of that dehumanizing language actually leads to policy, which just thinks of these folks as disposable, that you need to push them to the side. Harm reduction starts with the notion these are people who use drugs. They must be treated with respect and dignity. And the fact is that when you do that, you get to actually talk to a person. You get to figure out why they're using and hopefully put them on a track to, to get to get better. Um, and, and that's something that certainly arresting people doesn't do. And so and, and again, I believe that this administration is open to that. The uh, the both the health commissioner at the state level, as well as the commissioner of the agency that deals with uh, addiction and, uh, and, uh, and substance abuse issues are both supporters uh, publicly have been before both the Health Act and on overdose prevention centers. So we have two people who are experts within her administration who can advise her, you know, because she'll listen to she'll hear from me. I'm like, it's my bill. So obviously I want it to pass. But what I'm telling them is you don't need my bill. Just do an executive order. We can get these things to actually function. And she's got people inside the administration that can advise her on that. Gee, imagine that somebody in the executive office having executive privilege. I, I, a foreign concept, Jen. I didn't know that the, uh, you know, the governor or the president could actually do that. But hey, you learn something new every day. So Peter's here for anybody <laughs> who didn't notice that he popped in finally. Oh, um, you know how it goes. So yeah, so Peter's here. Everybody, say say yay. Yay! Uh, yay! Well, I did it. I did. did you see me open, and you couldn't just get in, or what happened? Why don't the people of New York have health care? Kramer, tell me. I mean, it goes without saying. He was, I guess he was just stuck behind all these doors. Yeah. <laughs> stuck. He just couldn't get him open. You know. <laughs> Come on. Gustavo knows everything about Seinfeld. It's New York life. I mean, it could just basically be like a Larry David, Jerry conversation about why don't people have health care? But it's true. And, you know, we obviously wanted to also talk to you about the elections. Yeah. Um, it goes without saying that this really is a bottom-up approach. Like we talked about the last time you were on, the value of AOC is not on Capitol Hill. It's in New York City. The things that have been done to galvanize so many of these uh, city council representatives, uh, assembly members that have been winning their races, the higher races are obviously a lot higher to obtain. And of course, in the case of the governor's race, we saw that the progressives even though they finished in second, were not able to get anywhere near the governor's seat just yet. But I think over time that's going to change because the more we bring in these non-corporate progressive legislators at all levels of New York government, that is going to make a significant difference. And that is how eventually we get to the New York Health Act passing in Albany. Your thoughts on that? I, I absolutely agree there. And it is 
and it makes me a little sick to my stomach to say what I'm about to say, but it's the truth. We should take more than a few pages from the conservative handbook. The reason why we have, I mean, the reason why we have the, the, the tragic decisions that we've had the last couple of days, last couple of weeks from this Supreme Court is because 30, 40, 50 years ago, Republicans started to figure out that they needed to be long-term thinkers. Like, how do we actually put ourselves, put our people, I'm going to say ours, because I don't want to tie myself to that. But you understand what I'm saying? They said, how do we put folks that believe the same things that we believe in positions of power so that they can make decisions that will impact, you know, further down the road? And that means that they started electing people to the school board. 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, they started figuring out whenever they could name judges. So they put judges on the on track to become judges that could potentially become part of the of the Supreme Court. So we have to think long term that way. Like we have to. And so empowering folks. One of the things, by the way, that I think is, is also incredibly valuable as far as AOC is concerned. One of the things that I'm such a fan of what she does is that she has been able to move the Overton window over almost by sheer force of will. Like there is a connection that she has to an entire generation of people who might be disconnected from politics. She has the ability and the uh, and and just the the willingness to explain things, to be able to connect with folks. It's like I I wish that I had, you know, that that my that I had gotten here. I mean, because I've been here. I'm an old guy. I am, uh, you know, I'm I'm I tell, I'm the crotchety uncle. I call myself of the progressive left. Like I've been here. This is my 12th freaking year in legislative office. You know, stay off my lawn and all that. So. Somebody like I, I never had the 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 connection that she has in social media circles to be able to say like, hey, look at how we prepare for a legislative hearing. Look at how look at what I do on a day to day basis to serve my constituency to do this. And all of that is about kind of in the long term, getting people to understand the process, but also to kind of change the perspective on what is possible in public policy, what is necessary, certainly, but what is possible. Right. Because there's always. Those two things are always competing with each other. The things that we actually need, oh, but that's never going to happen in real life. Like, so, okay, but how do we get them closer and closer together? And I do think that her constant presence in public discussions about sort of these issues around, around energy, around healthcare, uh, you know, around taxation, et cetera, et cetera, can and do move the needle. And these conversations obviously help as well. I agree. I, if I have, this is totally like a non sequitur, but what was your life before you got dragged into the 12 years of vortex that you've been in? Were you a teacher? Um, you- I was I, weirdly enough. I've been a professor. I've been a college professor since 99. Uh, I got to New York. So very quickly born in Puerto Rico, raised there, got to New York in 98 to do a PhD in political science, but you'll notice that you don't put a PhD next to my name down here. So that's because I've never really got done. I'm technically still a PhD student, but I started teaching college in 99 and I never intended to run for anything. For me, it was I, I, I started doing politics as, a, as an operative, like getting folks elected and learning kind of the operational aspect of particularly of campaigns and field and how to you know put cam- canvases together and how to put talking points together, that sort of stuff. And it was just so, so my, my work before was in public service as well, but it was doing it behind the scenes. And in 2000 and uh, it was long ago, Jesus, 2009, when the whole entire coup happened in the state, New York State Senate. And kids, as I said, stay off my lawn. Let me tell you how it used to be in my day. 
Two freaking people that call themselves Democrats joined the Republicans through the entire state Senate into a disarray and a coup that gave the Republicans power back. And uh, that inspired, I said, I got to do something about this dude. And so I chopped off his head. Not literally, of course, not literally, of course, but I defeated him in 2010. That was a guy named Pedro Espada and defeated him in 2010 and have been here and I've been here ever since and have been able to keep my sanity during this whole time and uh, and my focus and in, enough that I spent eight years in the minority, eight years in the minority. And I tell everybody being in the minority in the New York state legislature, if you don't care, it's the sweetest job in the universe. Because you get an audible next to your name, you get a parking placard, you always have a place to sit in any event that you go to, but you're not responsible for anything. So if you don't care, it's like, yay! If you care, it is immensely frustrating. I spent eight years doing that, and then I spent the last three years in the majority. And there's also uh, frustrations that come with being in the majority. That being said, I have I have passed a bunch of bills that I'm incredibly proud of. I've been able to 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 change policy conversations, been able to resist when the last governor tried to cut Medicaid in so many different ways. So I'm like, I'm so I, I'm in a, I'm in the place where I need to be. We're speaking with State Senator Gustavo Rivera of New York's 33rd district. Obviously, the New York Health Act is the order of the day, especially with Roe v. Wade being overturned. Now this becomes even more of a central focus. You know, one of the things Jen and I were talking about earlier is the nonprofit industrial complex. It is um, a huge cog in the equation. Um, when people think about uh, some of the issues that we deal with here in Florida, you know, even in blue states like New York, it is a huge problem. There are factions on the left, blue, Democratic side, whatever you want to call it, that are actually in the way of the New York Health Act getting passed. And if it was passed, there wouldn't be a need for all of these nonprofits saying, we're going to protect your right to choose. No, actually, if you had universal health care, you wouldn't have to worry about it. Can you please speak on that? But the, the it is true that what we're trying to do is something that is that is fundamentally changing the way that we deliver health care, not only in the state of New York, but hopefully providing a model for the rest of the country. Now, obviously, it is not uh, it is not something that hasn't happened before, because basically, <laughs> As our as our good as Uncle Bernie tells us all the time, and everybody knows, basically every modern democracy in the world has a version of guaranteed health care for their citizens, right? Uh, and so we're in the state of New York, we're trying to do something that is fundamentally changing the way that, at least in the United States, it is assumed that it's the way that it needs to be done. And therefore, uh, I we bump into what I call the bird in the hand problem. It's like we have. Uh, like, for example, uh, in, in the case of, of, of some of some folks in the labor in the labor unions, labor sector, there is some public sector unions uh, who legitimately are saying, well, we've got this. We've we've negotiated for this. We've got a better health insurance package than most folks. And we've we bled for it and we've given up uh, you know, raises to be able to get that. And all of that is legitimate. What I'm telling them is I want first of all, I want you to let the, let the bread go. Because you want to kill it. And more importantly, we're going to create a system which creates a higher floor for everybody, including your members, that among other things has long-term care baked into it, which is something that no health insurance product, regardless of which one it is, that you negotiated for has. Uh, and But that is – but getting people to make that transition is a very, very tough thing to do. Remember when we talked about the Overton window? 
this notion that this is just not the way it's done, right? The way it's done is you figure out how to get the best job you can to get the best type of insurance that you can. That notion that at the center of whether you get healthcare or not and the quality of the healthcare that you get is all about the insurance that you get. That is something that is pervasive and very hard to break. And so you have folks who are just resistant to the idea because they just can't think that it can be done in a different way. And that's difficult, bro. That is difficult to break. Yeah. We've had Wendell Potter on the show a couple of times and um, just from, yeah, he's great. And just from his experience and hearing what he has to say, everything you're saying about that, that mentality that's hard to break through is very purposeful by design and years and millions and millions of dollars of money so Mm -hmm. that we do believe that. And we're fearful of anybody saying anything that would threaten that norm. It's very intentional. And Mm -hmm. um, that's it. So it's like you're, it's fighting such a, you know, brainwashing that we've had for since probably, I mean, the seventies, like how long has it been since like the healthcare issue has been like in its current state, Peter, are you aware of that? I want to say it was like Nixon era and they were talking about starting to get money for friends in the insurance industry or like it, it, it goes back. There was something very nefarious. Anything terrible is that started is probably Nixon or Reagan. One of the two. It's just it happened. You know, well, it happened. Well, I, I can't remember if it was me or not, but I can assure you what I did was not very good. And that, <laughs> but again, uh, there is sort of this um, we're in this trap in many ways. Um, one of the things that New York actually does do well, extremely well, I have to say, um, I can't speak for the for the National Working Families Party because I have a number of issues with them. But the New York Working Families Party is excellent. And the you know, Robert Buonaspina, who's a friend, I'm sure you know him, um, you yeah, know what they do uh, to help non corporate candidates and especially try to uh, alleviate a lot of these problems um, I really think speaks a great deal as to expanding the electorate, because I really think that that's what we are really trying to do right now. Um, I even find that just being down here and going to networking events that have nothing to do with politics, it's amazing how many like-minded people you can meet getting out of those regular circles that everybody's just so accustomed to. Mm-hmm. So something as simple as dealing with this issue right now regarding abortion and recognizing that there is a religious element to it, but it's a lot more nefarious than people think because I'm from New Jersey. You're obviously in New York. We come from the most densely Catholic concentrated population in the country and everybody wants to throw slings and arrows in our direction saying that it's, you know, it's, it's really on us. No, this is um, this is much more deeply rooted than that. But I'm curious what it's been like being in the New York environment where the Catholic population is extremely strong and more or less in a very blue area where they stand on this issue, if they've been vocal in, in any regard, as far as that goes. Well, there is there is some parallel here um, when a few years ago we back in 2011, we passed marriage equality in the state of New York. And and I remember that there were a few places in my district and I, I tell the story all the time because it's part of it. It kind of gives context to the work that we do as public servants. It's like I was I voted for marriage equality, did so proudly, had a very good reason to do so. And there were some churches who disinvited me from ever being from ever visiting again. None of them were Catholic, though, which is weird. So they were Christian. But but I mentioned that to say that while while some of them while some of them uh, did kind of speak up and say, like, oh, that's terrible, that it, and I explained to them that even though they might disagree with me on this one, that if they didn't want to invite me to their home, that's fine. 
I still represented them. And if they wanted to invite me, I would tell them why I did it. And if they felt that I could no longer be supported because I made this one decision, then that was on, you know, I'll respect that. And that was on them. But it, but, but it, but during that time, it was, I mean, I was going to make the decision that I made regardless, but I was weary. I was like, all right, so what's going to happen now as far as backlash from communities that I represent a lot of Latinos. And there's like this perception that Latinos are just overall conservative since many of the countries that they come from, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, you know, Central America, Mexico, et cetera, are deeply, deeply religious and Catholic, that there would be that resistance. But the fact is that for the most part, at least in my personal experience, that that pushback has not really been that heavily there. I think that there is a uh, an understanding. There, there certainly are some of the more deeply conservative folks who are just kind of like, well, this is about, you know, this they're killing babies and they stop. Right. But I have not found that the majority of people have that have that situation, particularly in poor working class communities where there's where there's a where where uh, where there's like it's a fundamental thing that we have to that, that when we're talking about reproductive health care, the idea of whether you have children or not, whether you have access to to uh, uh, to to um, uh, to to condoms or to you know or to pills, etc. All of this is kind of the everyday. Um, that that ideology doesn't doesn't feature as heavily. So I have not seen uh, I have not seen something like that in my district. In the next couple of weeks, as I continue to go out and and do you know heavier campaigning than I've done in a while because I have a competitive primary particularly in this in parts of the district that that my new district that I have never represented before I might have something different to tell you but for the moment that has not been my experience that's great and I think a lot of it really just has to do you know everyone looks at the whole southern strategy and how there was this split between the Democrats and the Republicans the reality is is that I think it just has a lot to do with what the culture is in certain parts of the United States the Northeast has always been, like the West Coast um, and obviously parts of the Midwest, you know, the most forward thinking parts of the country. And when you're in parts of the country that are the most regressive in many ways, like the Deep South, particularly where we are, uh, there is this just this uh, knee jerk tendency to not evolve, to have a very like almost um, ancient mindset about the roles of women in society and things like that. I really think it's regional. I, I really do. A lot of people think this is a GOP um you know, uh, Democrat uh, fight. But I, I think it just has more to do with the splits that exist within the country. Now, of course, the evangelicals have completely captured the GOP. That is a fact. And I think that that is very reflective in the way that this whole issue has been dealt with, because they are powerful. And not only are they powerful, but they give a lot of money. And, you know, obviously, the, you know, the archdiocese are also very powerful in New York, Baltimore in particular. Uh, but in their case, you know, they're much more favorable on the Democratic side because that's where the votes are. And if the voters say we believe in a woman's right to choose, fighting against that's not going to be beneficial to them in terms of their power structure within the big cities. But in the South, I mean, forget it. Like, you know what's going on down here. And the only reason why I don't think it's on overkill in Florida compared to states like, you know, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Missouri, which have the trigger laws in place our governor thinks he's going to be the next president. And while he might be able to get away with it in Florida, he cannot run on that on a national level. And I think that that's a huge part of why Florida still has the 15 week um, you know, ban in place. You can debate whether that should be what stands. But I really do think that this is a regional thing. Do you think it's more that or you think it's more a party thing? 
I think it's it's both a regional thing and 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 we I mean when you're saying about who has captured the Republican Party, I mean one of the one of the most frustrating things about being a Democrat these days is that many of our of our my national leaders don't seem to recognize the actual battle that we're engaged in. Yeah. The folks that have actually captured the Republican Party are not folks that just have different opinions on taxation and different opinions on school, you know, school choice. And, you know, no, these are these are more fundamental conversations. We have a there is a creepy fascism in this country that is flowing directly through the, the Republican Party. And unfortunately, some of my some of my some of my Democratic colleagues are kind of aiding at abetting by not treating it for what it is. And so. On this issue, for example, like the idea, I mean, this is, this is, I mean, abortion is a, is a, is a, was made into a political football. Um, while, it, and, and, and while we can, com- when we communicate about it as a deeply personal issue that needs to be done, like this is not about forcing people to have births, right? We don't, we don't talk about it that way enough, right? We say like, well, this is about uh, the, the pro-life people. It's about I'm pro-life. You, have, you, we're forcing people to give birth. That's what we're doing. We're forcing 10 year olds in Ohio to get birth. And this is what the official position of the Republican Party is. And, and, and this and, and we're not. So I think it's it's certainly it's certainly regional. It's it's ideological. And unfortunately, many of our colleagues and my colleagues in my in, in, in Democratic Party don't seem to recognize that this is what we're actually dealing with. And by the way, just you're saying I, I would be really interested you got you got DeSantis and you got freaking uh, from Texas. What's his name? Abbott. Oh, yeah, that guy. So these two things are competing against each other. So who's going to be worse? Like who can be the you know the next generation Trump? Like who can be the next? The, the, and and so so it's interesting because Abbott is taking a very different tact. He's actually going all in. He's committing himself to this idea. That that this is that this is the the way of the future. I can see what you're saying about DeSantis that he might be making a calculation that as a national issue he's not going to be. But but Abbott is trying to become the Republican nominee as well, and you see how far right he's going. So it's it's all of this is just I mean it just makes me want to start drinking early in the day. That's all. Well, I mean, it's not I've actually picked up my day drinking quite a bit since <laughs> I've been up here, and because um, we sit here and talk about this, and I just feel infuriated. I, I don't even like hearing people talk about whether or not 15 weeks is reasonable. I feel like I'm listening to people discuss my body. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm listening to other people, many of whom don't have a uterus, discussing what we should be doing in the body. And quite honestly, at any point, I don't care what week it is. I don't care what day it is. I, you cannot tell people what they can do with their person. Mm-hmm. It's like it is so offensive to me. So you know, I did, I had to vent for a second there about mm-hmm. that. I'm sorry. No, you're just you're just saying facts as far as I'm concerned, and, <laughs> and and I think that we need to continue to say that over and over again because they're they're we we have to recognize the the road that we're already been walking down for a while, and it just keeps getting darker and darker in here, folks. It's like the idea that we are. It, it was it was George Carlin who said it best. Apparently, these people want just women to be the brood mare of the state. It, when when something like that happens, I mean, we're we're experiencing right now. It, it, it we just need to know what it is that we're facing, and we have to think about this as a long term problem. It's it's not just about this election. It is about it's about we have to 
it's about generational change, weirdly enough. Uh, just have to think about what we do in the long term, because if we don't, I mean, these folks have been thinking about this for such a long time, like generations. Again, I'm sorry to use that generational. Now. No, we love it, please. But, but it's like we, we need to think about this as a long term thing. We need to think it's not called a struggle for no reason. Like struggle is not doesn't mean one battle. It means many, many, many battles. And, and, and we just have to keep thinking about this as a long term problem. You know, I was in New Hampshire not too long ago, and the problem in New Hampshire is they've got the free staters. They've got these people who think that they they literally take the most extreme elements of libertarianism and believe that taxation is theft, that the government has no place in anything, that we can all live off the reservation and we'll all be fine. Um, I, I don't really know where that type of um, disconnect from society really comes into play, but you know, the one thing that libertarians always seem to be very adamant about is control of your person. I am of free will. I can do whatever I want. But when the rubber meets the road, you are going to say that I am pro-birth. I am not for pro-choice. Again, as Jen likes to point out, stop saying you know, anti-abortion or pro-life because- We're going to get on that. I'm going to be doing a little public service announcement in, after this because, the, yeah, I have some words. I really do think that that is um, something that we have found in politics is that you're either all in or you're not. You know, I have always lauded in many instances Senator Rand Paul's decisions when it comes to civil liberties as well as the war budgets and things like that. But- you're either a libertarian or you're not. You, you either you, you can't just decide because, well, I'm a libertarian posing as a Republican or you're a Republican posing as a libertarian because that's what he's doing. And that's what a lot of others do. You are either a progressive who's posing as a Democrat or you're a Democrat posing as a progressive. And that is the same problem that we see on both sides. We have to get to a consensus where, like you said, you are either going to fight like a dog who's got a bone like the GOP did with the Tea Party. Otherwise, they're going to run completely over you. And as we have found through history, and I didn't even think that this was conceivable, but if we stay on this trajectory that we're on right now, Joe Biden, I mean, I thought he was going to fail as a president to begin with. I didn't think he'd do this bad, but he may be entering into like James Buchanan territory because we've got really dangerous elements of society that are creeping in right now. And when somebody points out the other day, as I'm sure you saw, the white nationalists that were marching in downtown Boston and everyone is wondering, well, how does something like this happen when society squeezes you so goddamn tight the fringe, fringe elements of society are going to look really attractive to desperate people. This is throughout history. This is not a new thing. And we are at a point right now where these fringe elements of society are taking over, like overturning Roe v. Wade. And I really do think if we don't get our act together, like you said, and treat this as a moment in time where we could slip into fascism, we may already be partially there already. That's why... Inaction is the worst response to this. We have to get tough. And you're absolutely right about that. One, one thing I would suggest that everybody do is uh, they, I, have, I always keep it, I don't have it too far from me at any, at any one time. This is uh, On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century by Timothy Snyder, who's a, uh, a historian, particularly of the Second World War. But there is, there is much in here that is both scary and revealing. It's like you just, 
have to think about the the times that were, you know, it is said often that's like, oh, but when I look back at history and I think about, you know, uh, the Second World War or the civil right of civil rights of peoples of the 60s, et cetera, what would I have done in those times? Well, guess what, folks? <laughs> we're living in the middle of a historic moment that unfortunately is not going to, it doesn't, I mean, it's not a movie, right? It doesn't go from, it doesn't go from like event to event to event. There's event and there's all the quotidian stuff that we got to do because at some point you got to, you know, got to get some lunch, got to go to the bathroom, whatever. And then another event and that we are living in the middle of that. And it's a responsibility that we have to recognize it for what it is and act accordingly. And we can't just, again, there's like so much that the that, that national leaders just don't, just don't seem to get it. The, the way that they're acting sometimes like folks, you don't, don't you see what's actually occurring? I don't understand. And this, this is a book that's actually pretty good on that regard. It just kind of, scares you a little bit, but then gives you a little bit to work with at least. What are some of the things that we could do on a day-to-day basis to try to do with this stuff? We had a question um, that we didn't get to. Peter, you want to put it up? Our good friend of the show, I'm sure you know Roger Meadows. He's been up in Albany many times. Will you put forth a BI amendment to allow New Yorkers to propose and pass laws and amendments to the New York State Constitution using ballot initiatives and repeal laws via veto referendums? That's a good question. I can't say I'm supportive of that. Uh, at, at first glance, the first thing I think about is the way that California has become kind of a a free for all. As far as if if you are if you have deep enough pockets, you can put up. Uh, ballot referendums that just basically can just like upend the entire, the entire process. I mean, just like, I, I would, I mean, saying I'm like, we could potentially be, we could potentially be, uh, I, I would, I would love to hear more about why somebody would think that that is a good thing. I can, and I can understand at least in, in, in principle, the idea of providing uh, kind of a direct way to, to, to connect with people who are, who, with with the people who might want a certain law or a certain thing to happen, et cetera. I, I just, it, it just seems to me like it, it is just opening the door for folks who are already dropping millions of dollars in other places where they can do this and they can just put up uh, certain proposals that benefits certain, just certain sectors and then be able to plan it out so that they can mobilize just enough people that they need to actually get that done. I'm, I'm, I would be very weary of that. That's a very good point. And we have said many a times, um, you know, there are a lot of issues, uh, particularly with California politics, and I don't think it's talked about enough. Everyone wants to gloss over the fact that they have a Democratic supermajority, but it is not a well-governed state. There is no getting around that. And there's a lot of people who want to try to you know, be in denial of it. And that's why we've been very adamant that, you know, the New York Health Act, is much more likely to pass than CalCare. It is much more likely based on the current structure that is in place and the way New York politics is done. And we're huge proponents of, of ballot initiatives. But like you said, when you have the ability to just put anything out there, and as Jen, you like to point out, almost universal, well, not even universally, but a significant amount of time, ballot initiatives that make it to the general election ballot are going to pass regardless of what's even in them. Because people just have a tendency to vote yes without even knowing the details. We've been yeah. in situations down here in Florida where we, I think it was, I think it might have been like 2014, where we were told to vote yes on one form of environmental benefit. And then in the general vote, no, because they were going to add like a, a little caveat in there 
uh, to allow like dumping and stuff. It's it's absolutely crazy. And of course, not. It, we also have to remember what a very small political bubble we exist in in terms of having the vast knowledge of how all this stuff works. Because we have to remind ourselves that most people really don't understand all of these nuanced details. Yeah, we're mutants. Just acknowledge the mutant. <laughs> I'm certainly do that. Final thing before you go. Obviously, yeah. we've got a number of big elections coming up, yours included. Um, we are going to have some state Senate candidates that are going to come on. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the goal from your perspective? If we're going to get closer to the New York Health Act, and obviously we had a phenomenal congressional candidate who we are really uh, rooting for, uh, Yulene New. Uh, I, I think she is fantastic. And of course, if she's able to represent Manhattan, uh, that would be wonderful. But it's really about the New York State Senate. That is the big election that is coming up later this summer. So what are the goals right now in terms of the elections that's going to get New York that much closer to potentially getting over the line regarding the New York Health Act? Quick parenthesis. Let's not dis- let's not dismiss how important the assembly is and how important it is going to be to take more seats in the assembly we have two of the two seats uh, that that won that progressive candidates won that were WFP backed, by the way, uh, one in the city and one in the Hudson Valley. And both of them are going to be that we need to have more folks in the assembly that actually can kind of caucus and continue pulling it leftwards. So that's so I'm not going to say no to that. In the case of the Senate, um, there is there is obviously it is obviously going to be messy because this entire process uh, with with lines got through everything into disarray among other things i was if i want to stay in the building that i've lived in in a rent stabilized apartment for 22 years i would have had to primary robert jackson so i'm not going to be able to do that i'm going to have to i'm going to have to move and i'm not looking forward to it but it is what it is to be reelected so i think the i would say that we have to keep a majority um and i and i believe that we will be i think that we certainly are going to do that it is uh, it is about making sure that the that my colleagues all hear from their constituents. If the folks are watching our New York state residents like you need to actually make sure that my colleagues uh, hear that this is something that you care about, uh, that the New York health Act is something you care about and then join the campaign so that we can continue to put pressure. The reality is that there is it, it's a, as, as, I, as we said earlier, it is an incredibly complicated thing. We're trying to change fundamentally the way that we deliver healthcare in the state of New York. And that is an enormous, enormous thing. So we got to get everybody on board. That means we have to have many of my colleagues who have been sponsors to become champions of it. We have to make that transition because it's one thing to put your name on a bill. It's another one to mention it uh, at you know town halls in your district. It's uh, mentioning it to the leadership within the conference, mentioning it to, you know, to, 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 to groups that want to endorse you, et cetera, that it's a priority for you. Um, and so I, I, I believe that there is a, a very big part here of getting uh, keeping a majority, certainly, but reminding my colleagues of how essential and important this is, turning those folks who have been sponsors into into champions and getting folks that are trying to become senators to commit to actually um, to actually being part of it. And it's, it says right there, join the campaign for New York Health and NYHcampaign.org. And it's a, I know I understand it's a little bit self-serving, but. I'm going to put it in at the end. I want to make sure I come back. Yes. It's my bill. <laughs> it's not only my bill. I'm the chair of the health committee. It's been. What's it's the, the website? Uh, NY, uh, uh, at, oh, my God. 
this like, see, this, it's only been three and a half weeks that I've been, it's like, so it's like, at, if you follow me on Twitter at nysenatorrivera.com, at nysenatorrivera.com, you will be, uh, uh, I will be uh, putting all that stuff up there. It's a, there's, it, it's three, three and a half weeks ago, bro. I didn't think I was going to have a primary. And then the entire thing got thrown into disarray. And now I'm in a, in a competitive primary where the local county organization today announced their endorsement of my opponent, who is a person. I've only met her one time. And, uh, but she is certainly uh, loyal to the party apparatus. I, unfortunately, I'm not a very good knee bender. So I don't bend the knee too well. So I guess that means that I got to go. So, well, we can, uh, well, Jen, uh, we, whatever we can do to help. I mean, let's, uh, you know, let's lend a hand. I mean, this well, is, this is uh, part of it. Certainly uh, you should get your ass from, from, from Florida to up here to, to New York. So we can actually go knock on some doors in the Bronx. That's what I'm going to do this afternoon. Like I'm when doing it every day. Do it every day. When's the election? The election is August 23rd is the Democratic primary. Uh, a lot of stuff, as I said, because this is something that's so new, I didn't think I was going to have a primary just a few weeks ago. So everything is coming into place in the next few weeks. You know, our, our website is going to I didn't I haven't had a competitive primary since 2016. So I'm, I'm my my website is old. <laughs> I just been focusing on that whole thing. What are you, governing? I've been focused on the governing piece. So my website is old, but. Uh, all of that is being updated right now, and uh, and I am just you know getting out there talking to voters, uh, asking for their support, taking nothing for granted, and assuming nothing, asking for their support, and hoping I get it on August twenty third. I'm going to shoot you a message. I'm going to be up there for a week. Uh, I have Dude, a wedding to go seriously. to. Yeah. Seriously, yeah, seriously. I have a week. I have a wedding to go to uh, in in near Boston, and I'm going to be staying uh, in Central Jersey for about five days. So I'm going to I'm going to take at least a day or two. Uh, to come meet up with you in the Bronx. Uh, Beautiful. That'll be probably around like August 1st, August 2nd, somewhere around there. So, I'll be knocking on doors. Yeah. In Jen, wonderful weather. Jen, Jen, you're going to, you're going to, can you possibly find your way up to New York? Is that no, possible? because that's when we're doing our family vacay from yeah. that we're going. And so we're going, but yeah, I will definitely keep that in mind if anything opens up between now and then. Okay, well, I can go for a day or two and then you'll come afterwards. We don't have to be there at the same time, but exactly. uh, Eulene would love to see you. And I'm sure that there are other people in New York who would love to have you there. I mean, got lots of campaigning to do in New York City. Uh, quick, New joke York. On the, quick joke on the, on the New York 10th. This yeah. whole thing that Mondaire is doing, which I'm like, it's like me saying, hey, there's, there's some great Puerto Rican restaurants in Buffalo, so I'm going to run for Congress there. I don't understand it. And I don't that, get it. <laughs> and that is where, and that is where, and leave it to a woman to have to do the freaking job. Alessandra Baeghi, who I do not agree with on everything, Baiagi. but the Baeghi, the fact that she is stepping in to run against Maloney, that's all you need to know. Anybody who's willing to challenge corporate power, they have my respect, and I'm sure, Jen, you feel the same way. Of course. <laughs> that's what it's all about. Yeah. Guys, if you are not currently supporting New York State Senator Gustavo Rivera. Make sure you get to the NewYorkHealthCampaign.org. Follow Please. Gustavo on his page. And if you are in the New York metropolitan area, New Jersey, Connecticut, even Pennsylvania or Massachusetts, and you have the opportunity to get to the Bronx and get out there, I'll be there wearing my Yankees hat and I'll be knocking on doors where all the Yankee fans are and getting their asses out there to vote for this guy. Because Thank you, knows we cannot be taking any of this for granted. Um, so often, and it is the biggest problem on the left, as you know, we are like a cat chasing the red dot on the wall. Every time you only go after the top, top seat, 
the seats at the lower level, the seats at the local level, this is where the sausage is made. This is where we can get the New York Health Act. So Mm -hmm. we cannot mess this one up. So let's make sure we get all of our ducks in a row. Get your asses there or get on the phones, get on the texts. Make sure you help this guy out. He's a friend of the show, which automatically makes him cool. And of Thank course, you, sir. An and, and one thing, and one thing I'll throw to everybody out there: if folks are not familiar with something called Arthur Avenue, Arthur Avenue is the actual little Italy in the Bronx. It's not that little Italy in the south of Manhattan is a lie. They've been lying to you. The real <laughs> one is up in the Bronx. It is the original one. So we can go knock on doors for a couple of hours, and then when you're really tired and thirsty, then we go to Arthur Avenue, get some of the best Italian food in the world. See, it's it's a win-win, folks. It's a now, win-win. Now he's now he's really trying to threaten me with a good time, you know. Why do I love you like I do? Because now I got to go see a Bronx Tale, thanks to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about the doo-wop is back oh, on the street, so it's going to be doing it for you, Gustavo. Thank you so much for coming on, as always. It's a great you. pleasure to see you, folks. And guess thank what I'm going to go do this afternoon? Going to go knock on doors. That's what I'm going to do. That's my man. Take care, folks. Thank you for having Bye, me on. Be well. See you later. What can you say? We need no, more representatives. So we do need more representatives. Yeah, and it's not that he's lovely. He is just great. He really yeah. is. And that is the type of person that we need representing us. And you even pointed out, weren't you a teacher at one time? Yeah, he's, he's a professor. He is somebody who actually gives a damn about people. You have to, to be like, the two most underappreciated professions we have in society are teachers and nurses. You have to really give a damn to do that work for a living. Like you really do. And having those types of people in positions of power, not just hedge funders and lawyers, sorry, Jen, uh, as our representatives, that's a problem. And it's not to say that you can't have wealth management people and lawyers and doctors being representatives, but you need more of the people, social workers. You don't see them running for office, but they should be. They can't afford to run for office. Yeah. Um, So that's why you see so many lawyers and doctors and such, because they're the ones who can afford to run for office. They'll Um, be here too. So, all right, I'm going to, should I do my little public service announcement? Dan has a public service announcement. I have a public service announcement. And so we'll make a clip of this so that we can put it out there because this is actually, um, Really, I want to make it addressing people like Kyle Kalinske. And I actually texted this to Mike Figueredo a little while back as well. But any content creators that um, are pro-choice, they have a tendency to use the words anti-abortion. I loathe the term anti-abortion because you know what? We're all anti-abortion. There's no pro-abortion people. There's not like a contingency of people that are pro-abortion. And I feel like when you look at our news media, it very often uses the phrase anti-abortionists, anti-abortionists. That's rewarding those people with some sort of like, you're, you're saying it like that. I mean, yeah, they're anti-abortion. So am I. I'm not, I'm not pro-abortion. So please stop falling into that right-wing narrative. You guys are big. If you're a big content creator on the left, please stop using the term anti-abortion. They're not anti-abortion. They're anti-choice. They're not pro-life. They're anti-choice. Um, just, it's very simple. They're not anti-abortion. They're anti-choice. That I just, that's my public service announcement. And then I also wanted to um, 
say something about the that reel from Anna Kasparian, and I actually pulled it up so that I can share it because so guys, Anna Kasparian made a clip. This was from a few years ago. I don't even remember. I don't remember it from the time, but apparently it went viral again recently. And I just thought she really did a good job of expressing exactly what my sentiment would be um, on this issue. And I just, I want to, you know, props where props are due. So I'm going to share this. Oh, um, um, I, I don't, don't care. care. That you're a Christian. Christian. I, don't I don't care, care what, what the Bible, Bible says. says. Like, like, I feel, I feel like, like it's, it's a clown show, like, like sitting here trying to decipher what your little mythical book has to say about these very real political issues, right? I don't care if you're Christian. In fact, I will fight for you to have your religious liberty and practice your Christianity. I believe in that. I don't believe in Christianity, which means that you do not get to dictate the way I live my life based on your religion. I don't care what the Bible says. You have every right in the world. All those women who identify with your religion have every right in the world to not get an abortion, to not take birth control, but they do not have the right to dictate my life and what I decide to do with my body. I don't care about your goddamn religion. I'm so tired of having non-stop conversations about what the Bible says. You live your life in the way that you interpret the Bible. Again, I don't care, but you don't get to take the Bible and tell me, well, the Bible says this in this chapter, in this verse, I don't care. I don't care. I don't believe in it. And I have the right based on our constitution to not believe in it. I just... I love that. So anyway, props to Anna Kasparian. And I don't know exactly when that's Hello? from. Discover card here to explain our cash. Take benefit. off your internet, Jen. You are really bad at this. <laughs> I did that. You know, so, and anyway, props where props are due. And this is a perfect opportunity to basically say, look, you know, we had it out with Anna, um, you know, a number of months ago because she uh, and Jenk were very uh, fascistic in regarding their uh, approach to Aaron Maté's uh, opinions about war, uh, international war correspondence and whether or not what we're doing in other countries is on the level or basically di you know, dis uh, disseminating a lot of the things that go on in the Middle East and then saying that um, you know, he's, a, you know, he, uh, he's an Assad puppet and all of that. But the big problem in left politics is this idea that, OK, so you disagree on that point. So let's just throw the baby out with the bathwater. As we've often pointed out, it's the same problem that we deal with uh, with Andrew Yang is that you can agree with him on 20 issues. But if the 21st issue is wrong, he's finished. If Anna Kasparian is correct about a significant issue, then we should be mature enough to say, great job. Let's focus on the things that we can agree on. So often on the left, it's this disintegration of any type of common ground because you found something along the way that you said, nope, terrible idea, don't like it. In fact, I don't like it so much that I don't want anything to do with you anymore, get lost. Well, this is where I like to think that I have a little bit more maturity regarding context and nuance, which seems to be dead. But um, 
No, how she, her little rant there from however long ago that was, is exactly how I feel about all of these things. Like when I even hear people talking about, well, 15 week band sounds, that sounds reasonable to me. Oh, I think it should be a heartbeat bill. And I hear all these people debating, well, second trimester, no third trimester. And I really like, I want to be like, get the fuck out of here with that. Seriously. Like it's infuriating to me that this is a discussion that we're still having. I, it's, it's just, it's outrageous. And by the way, the majority of these pro-life people, they're not pro-life, they're forced birth. Because once that baby is born, they don't want to give it health care or an education or housing. So they don't, they, these are not people that are pro-life. These are people that are forced birth and anti-woman. And I'm just so sick of listening to fucking men sit there and debate which trimester and weeks and heartbeat. Are you kidding me? So is that there's an appropriate week for you to determine what's okay to do to my person? I can't even. It's infuriating to me. That was always the biggest takeaway from my perspective regarding this entire thing was how many men were voicing their opinion about a woman's right to choose. If there was a significant contingent of women that we're coming out saying it's really terrible and no one should be able to get an abortion. Okay. Well, yes, but here's the problem. It's not even close. It is so many more men that have been vocal about this saying that women do not have a right to choose. Yeah. Dudes get fucked. Seriously. Get fucked. But it's, it, it, you know, for a long time, I couldn't decide what actually infuriates me more men that are opposed to my right to choose and have bodily autonomy or women that are opposed to my right to choose and have bodily autonomy. And I've come to the conclusion that they're all, all it, it's equally as infuriating. I just, I, I just, I can't even, uh, we are awaiting the Vanguard, uh, Gavin was just in the green room for a second. I'm sure he'll be back. So we're. What do, we have? do you guys think fascism becomes more attractive when they've experienced decades of failure and inadequacy from institutions? Like at some point people want. Absolutely. That's the, yes. that's, by, that's by definition how you get fascism. That's how we got Trump. That's how you get all sorts of like real um, authoritarian commanding leaders is people are sad and desperate and they're looking for a way out. And then that person comes and they other the other people. So, Oh, it's the Mexicans at the border or it's the Muslims or it's, it's whatever it is. And people love that when they're sad and desperate. Absolutely. 1000%. And that's what people still are failing to recognize about what is happening right now. Like we talked about with the, um, the white nationalists marching in Boston. It's like, You think that this has anything to do with Trump stoking fires with the stuff he says? It's like the it's like the uh, the mass shooter in Highland Park the other day. The first thing I want to point out is that this guy went to a Trump rally. How about the fact that if our country was functioning properly in terms of health care, living wage, environment and all of that, people like Trump would never succeed because things are not bad enough for morons like that to rise up and convince people that they're the answer. A carnival barking game show host is the answer. No, that's only the answer when the society is completely failed. That's what happens. So this will be a fun discussion. Uh, We have been on their show. They've been on our show. They are two of the very best non-corporate commentators, podcasters on YouTube today. 
You know them as the Vanguard, Gavin and Zach. Welcome back to Generation. Hey, what's up, guys? How's it going? Hey, how's it going? Hey, I hear Zach's driving in his car. Yeah, I'm going on I-70 through uh, the Rocky Mountains right now. So if the audio is terrible, I'll spend most of my time on mute. But appreciate you guys having us on. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on, guys. Yeah, great to see you both. Thanks so much for the invite. Excited to chat. Yeah, you know, at, at a time like this, um, you know, you brought up a really good point, um, you know, with your conversation with Kyle the other day that, you know, we have to be able to have more of these conversations, you know, this cross networking with a lot of channels, because, you know, a lot of times people are just kind of off doing their own thing. But realistically, and especially now with with Roe v. Wade and obviously with the inaction of the president, you know, we have to become a, a much more galvanized you know, movement, as far as I can tell, especially from the non-corporate left side of politics. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that one of the most important things and sometimes underrated things is just what you're saying, talking to people that don't always agree, but have certain uh, key goals in common. And that's something I've always felt like is just an, an obvious answer uh, to coalition building, which so many people you know, seem to be uh, unable to wrap their minds around. It's like, yeah, you're going to have to deal with some people that you disagree with uh, on any given issues. We were talking a little bit in that interview with Kyle about how, you know, Zach and I have had some conversations even with like libertarians, stuff like that. And there are serious areas uh, where we can work together on, you know, police brutality, for example, or the war on drugs. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of issues there. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, sorry, Jen. No, go, go, go. I, 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 see, if you had a, if you had a visual, then I would, I, I forget that, that you're, you're there. That's the problem. Please go. Oh, no, I was just going to piggyback on what Gavin was saying and say, you know, uh, this is kind of an extension of the argument that I think Ryan Grimm was uh, making in his uh, piece or at least describing. Uh, the problem with uh, the left is that uh, we need to always be able to actually act, right? We need to have a game plan together for when the rubber hits the road. And of course, the nuances to all of our different disagreements, they're all worthwhile and they're worth hashing out. And Gavin and I spent a lot of time debating the minutia. Uh, but when it's time to, you know, do something as serious as like, you know, uh, seize the or re-seize rather, you know, a, a fundamental human rights such as, you know, a woman's right to, uh, you know, uh, reproductive health care or, or any of another uh, any number of issues that are now under threat with the fascist fucking Supreme Court that we have. Um, you know, it's time for us to really unify and say, OK, well, you know what? I might not, not like all of your behavior. Or I might disagree with you when it comes to X, Y or Z. But we all fundamentally believe that this is an attack on human rights and we're going to stand and rally against it. And I don't give a fuck who I'm standing next to at a rally to, uh, you know, uh, like, I don't know, restore women's rights. And because in Missouri, we already had our trigger ban. Like, it's completely gone. There are no abortions in uh, Missouri where we live. So the urgency is real now. I mean, that you cannot get a legal abortion in our entire state. Uh, so we need to be able to prioritize that major issue and set aside the fact that like, oh, I'm sorry, like you voted for Elizabeth Warren or you wanted to in the primary. Like, that's completely irrelevant right now. Uh, we're trying to get like some uh, real human rights restored. So we can't be like too like, yeah, those disagreements are worth having, but we need to be able to set them aside completely when we're doing something serious. I don't know, man. I think Elizabeth Warren voters still need to answer for their sins. Yeah, you don't you wouldn't you wouldn't I'm just kidding, bro. I'm completely kidding. <laughs> I don't completely disagree with that. Um a, a simple acknowledgement of falsifying Bernie and holding him out as a sexist would be sufficient probably. Um but but short of that I don't know that they can ever come back. I, think we're, I was completely kidding, but yeah, I see both your points. <laughs> yeah, and, and what's interesting is that as soon as it came down, as soon as Roe v. Wade got overturned, 
we're sitting in a situation where the first instinct, kind of like yesterday, the first instinct with the mass shooter in Highland Park is to say, oh, he went to a Trump rally. Oh, well, Roe v. Wade is overturned. How about those damn Bernie bros that voted for Bernie instead of Hillary? It's like you haven't learned anything. Like you really haven't. Anyone who wants to talk about why Roe v. Wade got overturned doesn't want to talk about the 49 years of codifying opportunity that was there in three different Democratic presidential administrations and never got done. Priority when campaigning, not a priority when elected. Yeah, Obama literally explicitly said in 2009, like, oh, that, that's not a top legislative priority at the moment. It's like, why? That was like at least 10 percent of your campaign. Yeah. Well, it's not exactly like the first time that somebody campaigned on something and didn't do it. I mean, look at who's sitting there now. He hasn't done anything that he said he was going to do. In fact, he's been he's still building the wall. He's keeping up Trump's deals. He's I don't think he's gotten rid of that nice tax cut for the wealthy people. So, you know, he's you know, he hasn't done much either. I think this is a very important discussion that has to happen right now, because, you know, I wasn't thinking about it too much the other day, guys. But it kind of dawned on me last night for some reason, in light of it being the 4th of July and just everything that's going on right now, I thought Biden was going to be a bad president. I even thought it was possible he would be a failure. He is possibly heading to James Buchanan-type territory as a failure of a president. Please share your thoughts on just how bad he has been and then, of course, the prospect that he really does need to be primaried, regardless of what his plans are in 24. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with what you said. He's way worse than even I would have expected, um, because even though I didn't vote for Joe Biden, um, I voted for Howie Hawkins, the Green Party candidate. I was still I'm not going to lie. I was still a little bit relieved when Trump, you know, let finally left office. And it was like, OK, well, at least as much as I disagree with Biden, as corrupt and horrible as he is, at least now we have some like adults in the room. Right. Uh, apparently not even that, because the country's still in total disarray. It seems like, you know, the, the government is just as, um, you know, uh, corrupt as ever. It seems like there's just as much lack of any sort of action. Um, and as a result, it's really empowered the right wing. We have this burgeoning, you know, right wing fascist movement now in this country because of just how ineffectual the Democrats have been. So, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's even worse than expected. Um, and I think whether Biden likes it or not, he's going to have to face some sort of challenge uh, from from somebody, whether or not it's a leftist or, you know, some some guy like Howard Stern, who's just like, you know, it's time for me to jump in this race because I want attention and because Biden's, you know, vulnerable. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, there's there's a lot to unpack when it comes to the Biden presidency, because, look, I carry all of the weight and shame of actually having signed off on this. I did vote for Joe Biden. I thought that he was going to at least accomplish a couple of key things that he didn't do. I thought he was going to shore up the Iran deal. I thought he was going to uh, potentially uh, stop supplying weapons to Saudi Arabia uh, to continue slaughtering and uh, committing to basically a genocide in Yemen. You know, these little marginal things. Uh, you know, I also am sympathetic to the argument that Trump is a fascist and I wanted him out of office on principle. Uh, so all those things, obviously, Joe Biden is corrupt and we knew all that going in. Um, he, he's basically a Republican president and he's governed as such. Um, so I, I think as far as, uh, you know, maybe that's a little egg on my face. Maybe I should have anticipated that this guy would be, uh, you know, just a brain dead bag of bones. Uh, Gavin and I actually before the podcast uh, was ever a, a thing. Uh, we ran this blog called the the Vanguard blog and uh, an article we wrote together, actually, we collaborated on. It was called The Weekend at Biden's. 
and we just photoshopped the uh, like Pete Buttigieg and Barack Obama or whatever, just like carrying Joe Biden's body like across the finish line. And we were like, holy shit, they're actually going to be able to do this. They're actually going to be. And, and then and he's just governed that way. Right. And, and kind of like in kind of like the same way that the like Republican neocons were able to manipulate how fucking absolutely dumb as rocks George Bush was uh, in the 2000s to do whatever the fuck they wanted. Uh, you know, the, the, the neo uh, liberal uh, class, uh, the Wall Street class of the Democratic Party, uh, you know, with all of their fecklessness, they're just going to manipulate Joe Biden, who, uh, you know, has no real cognitive ability left. Uh, Kamala Harris is a complete disaster as a vice president. She's not able to take any heat off of him. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think they have to dump him, right? Because the uh, uh, or the alternative for the Democratic establishment is, as Gavin said, to get a guy like Howard Stern. Um, I think what they'll end up trying to do is rally behind a guy um, who's younger. I don't think they'll go for Pete Buttigieg because that's tried out. But I think that the Democratic establishment has to realize at this point that Joe Biden is such a, a, a feckless, you know, disaster of a president. Uh, that they have to do something in the primary, which also will open the door. Unfortunately, it's a Pandora's box for them. Uh, it will open the opportunity or the door for, you know, somebody else to sneak in and challenge whoever their, uh, you know, predetermined candidate will be. Um, but, yeah, that's a long winded answer. Basically, fuck Joe Biden. And I think that the Democrats are going to even in all of their, um, you know, rigid stupidity going to try and primary him themselves. Yeah. yeah, the thing is, they don't really have anybody. I mean, I for me, it almost seems like the only plausible strategy they could come up with would be to replace Kamala and try to run Joe because she can't do it. And she like they could maybe bring in somebody as another VP candidate that maybe has more energy, more draw, more something. Mm -hmm. But they don't have anybody that could take a lead role in this. They have nobody. Yeah, it's really crazy how. Uh, how how much they don't have any rising stars like the Democratic Party just has literally no one that's like the obvious next choice you know uh, we got Pete Buttigieg and fucking Kamala Harris Amy Klobuchar and I will say you know uh, Zach and I obviously have spent the entirety of the Biden's presidency just you know pointing out all of the uh, the, the the failures of his administration, of course. Um, but it actually is nice, I will say, in a in a kind of sick way, um, to finally have the rest of like liberal, just mainstream, normy Democratic voters kind of catch up uh, to us where we've been the whole time. Because in the wake of the you know complete fumbling of the ball and the just total lack of any sort of response to the overturn of Roe v. Wade, I really do see a lot more kind of normie Democrats, people that normally would have no problem voting for Joe Biden. Now they're pissed off too. Uh, so instead of the liberals fucking gaslighting us progressives and socialists now, they're with us in feeling this rage and anger towards Joe Biden because now their main issue, uh, which obviously is an incredibly important issue to me, too. But when you talk about just most, you know, normie liberal voters, uh, they don't necessarily expect Joe Biden to give them health care or socialism or anything like that. But abortion is the one goddamn hill that the Democrats are supposed to die on. Uh, and now that you know, the Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, this administration has proven that they won't die on this hill and they won't even fucking fight for it. Uh, yeah, we're no longer being gaslit by all these fucking liberals that are telling us that we just need to, you know, vote for Democrats because it's OK. They're better than Republicans. No, now they're on the same page as us, which is this is fucking bullshit. They came into power 
promising us these things. They're not doing them. We voted for them. We came out in you know record numbers, not me, but you know the Democratic voters uh, to elect two senators in fucking red state of Georgia. Uh, all this hard work was put in. All this money was spent. All this time on the ground. All these phone calls made and doors knocked. And what the fuck do we have to show for it? What the fuck do we have to show for it? So again, as fucked up as it is uh, about what's going on as far as uh, reproductive rights in this country, the one the one nice thing is that now there's some sense of urgency back among the Democratic Party base to actually pressure our goddamn elected officials to do literally anything. Yet they're fundraising off of it like there's no tomorrow. So I am still getting the they're, and they're even responding with their their general pivot, a la Kamala did it the other day. Oh, but there's an election coming up. All they can do is pivot to voting for someone else in their party, even though we've done that and it's gotten us nowhere. I, too, regrettably voted for Joe. I will not do it again. I will not. There is not. I honestly there is no universe that I that I would do it again. Um, so, you know, but that's they're still dangling it. Like, I see what you're saying. Like uh, people on the street are realizing now how screwed up this is and that they've led us down this road. And yet they're still fundraising off of it. And it goes without saying uh, that I think a huge part of this where everybody wants to talk about, well, this is the react. This is the after uh, effect of, let's say, Hillary, whatever, not winning in 2016. And you've got three conservative justices. Lord knows that if Hillary was president, we still would have had conservative justices, maybe not as conservative. But if anyone thinks that we wouldn't have had a Neil Gorsuch replacing an Antonin Scalia if, if Hillary was president, doesn't know anything about how this works or how it has worked. Maybe you don't get somebody like a Kavanaugh or a Barrett, but you still get somebody really bad. And now what you're also seeing is the after effect of cheating Bernie in 2016 and 2020. So what you now have is the remember, Biden had to completely sell out to the corporate establishment in order to stop Bernie. So as a result, you now have Medicare prices going up almost 15 percent, highest increase in the history of the program. And this is under a Democratic president. So when you take almost 50 million dollars in campaign money from one specific industry running for president, well, that's a lot of political favors that come back. And so the entire corporatization of our political system, which we have always talked about supporting Bernie, is now being shown in the face of these so-called people who think, no, we just need to move to the center when it's really about corporate versus non-corporate. Mm, yeah, that's an excellent point. And so going forward, and, and this is, I think, like a really important thing that I think a lot of people really need to understand is we know about um, – the author is slipping my name, uh, the one who wrote the book, What's the Matter with Kansas and Listen Liberal, uh, Thomas mm, Frank. Thomas Frank, yeah. Uh, and he talks about that with Kansas. Well, neighboring state to the east, what has it been like in a state like Missouri, which at one time was always known as a state that was a Democratic stronghold because of the farming community, but that got completely pushed away. And now it's a completely red state. And now as a result of what has been happening, why is it that Missouri is like this? It has a trigger law that doesn't allow the women's right to choose anymore. But it's so much more than that. What has been your observation being in the heartland as a reason why the Democratic Party has been such an epic failure in your state? Oh, yeah. Well, I have a good answer for that one. And I think this goes for a lot of states, whether it's West Virginia or even a place like Pennsylvania, where the you know Democrats are um, hopefully going to win with the 
candidate and for the Senate, John Fetterman. But I think if the Democrats had their way and had been able to, you know, force Connor Lamb on the on the voters like they wanted to, they wanted him to be their nominee. I think that Dr. Oz would uh, beat Connor Lamb. And so, you know, John Fetterman was able to get through the nominating process, luckily. Um, but again, if the Dems had their way, Connor Lamb would be the nominee in Pennsylvania. And the reason I bring that up is because that's a microcosm of what's going on in every state across the country, which is that there are good candidates running, um, whether it's a guy like John Fetterman or here in Missouri, a guy like Lucas Coons, who, you know, I don't agree with him on every single issue. Uh, but the guy's pretty in lockstep with the, you know, populist economic uh, left vision for Missouri and for the country that I have. You know, he's the kind of guy that actually has the ability to connect with working class people and, and, is running on a working class kind of platform, super pro union, um, you know, all, all the stuff you want to hear, pro $15, anti-outsourcing, uh, a real populist economic kind of Democrat. Um, but even though he's doing well in the polls, the Democrats are, you know, trying to prop up this candidate who's actually the heiress to the Budweiser fortune, who's a total normie Democrat, a total yeah. just corporate shill, frankly, and who would get absolutely slaughtered in a general election, uh, which is likely going to be between whoever the Democratic nominee is and Eric Greitens, who's the former governor of Missouri, who's completely disgraced. He had to resign in shame after a huge sex uh, scandal where he was like he had like a mistress tied up in his fucking basement. who was he was blackmailing her. If you're not familiar with that story, it's absolutely insane. But the point is, yeah, really look into it. It's 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 fucking crazy. And that guy's probably going to be the next senator from my state alongside Josh Hawley, who's also, you know, one of the absolute worst. So. Uh, again, the point I'm making is there are good candidates that could speak to Missouri voters, to rural voters, uh, people that aren't necessarily, uh, you know, plugged into the conversation that, you know, these these uh, candidates, a guy like Fetterman, a guy like Lucas Coons really can speak to the kind of uh, bread and butter issues. And again, centering economic populism, they don't get lost in the culture war. Uh, again, this is the kind of Democrat that can actually feasibly win in Missouri. But what does the Democratic Party do with a candidate like that? They try to squish them down and they try to prop up some corporate chill. In this case, the fucking heir to the Budweiser fortune, who has zero chance of beating Eric Greitens in the uh, general election. So, you know, I don't blame the voters of Missouri or West Virginia or Pennsylvania or any of these states which are turning, which either have completely turned red or are in the process of turning more and more red. I blame the Democratic Party because, again, we do have candidates that are capable of reaching these voters. We do have candidates that are capable of, you know, uh, speaking to the needs of actual Missourians. Uh, but time and time again, the Democratic Party wants nothing to do with them and actively works to uh, to, to sabotage their candidacies. And, and that leaves people with the option of these corporate shills, these rich, you know, centrist Democrats that don't actually stand for anything, that don't actually speak to their uh, needs and clearly don't understand them. You know, if you're a fucking heiress to the Budweiser fortune, you don't know what it's like to be a, you know, average Missourian living in the middle of the goddamn state with uh, living in poverty or something like that. Um, so I, I truly blame this on the Democratic Party. It almost, it's crazy. It almost seems like it's intentional at times, you know, like yeah. another example is in uh, Kentucky, right? With Charles Booker last time around. Uh, nope, smush him. And let's prop up Amy McGrath because she's totally going to do well with Kentucky voters. What the fuck is this? So it's 100 percent the Democratic Party's fault. If they were actually propping up candidates that spoke to working class issues and, you know, actually were able to connect with these voters, I don't necessarily think they would be, you know, losing ground in every goddamn state that's not New York and California. I, I do think it's intentional. I, I think when you're talking about the people at the top of that food chain, and that are really calling shots and making decisions. I do think it's intentional that they're Mick resistance. I think they love to be in that position because 
They don't have to do anything. And now, even though they finally showed their true colors, they're still fundraising off of the same thing. So I do think it's intentional by the people in the leadership of the party. Certainly it is in our state. Like our state, the way our state party is run, the Democrats, they're purposefully feckless. Like they, they don't even try. They make no effort. They don't even run for open seats. They, they don't do anything. And I, and I think that's by design. I do think it's intentional. I think the followers are more just on some sort of color war, you know, tribal type team situation. Uh, but I think the people at the top, it's absolutely intentional that they're this feckless. Would you also be able to speak to one of the big problems that I think exists, especially in places like the heartland where people may like, uh, you know, a candidate like a Lucas Kuntz who's also a veteran, uh, which I think goes a very long way in that part of the country, as it will go for somebody like DeSantis if he runs for president. But I really think there is something to be said for how people feel about voting for a Democrat, like how the feeling that somebody has when they're like, wow, this guy, Lucas Kuntz, he seems like a really good candidate. I'd really like to vote for him. But my God, do I hate that Democratic Party? I don't know if I can do it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely uh, a, a real thing. And and what's annoying, too, is that when you are a candidate like a Lucas Coons, who is more anti-establishment, who's a little bit more populist, uh, it, it's really unfortunate because on one hand, you want to separate yourself from Joe Biden, who's like historically unpopular. You want to separate yourself from the Democrats and all of their failures and fecklessness and everything that, you know, normal working people associate the party with. So on one hand, yeah, you want to, you know, distance yourself from that. On the other hand, Unfortunately, this is a problem we run into again and again and again, is that to win a Democratic primary, you have to court Democratic Party voters. And most of those people are a lot of times older. They're you know wealthier. They're maybe living in the suburbs. They probably watch a shit ton of MSNBC. And unfortunately, they really don't want to hear you, uh, you know, go to war with the Democratic Party as much as just normal independent voters. So in order to win the Democratic primary, you have to walk this very you know, fine line. And that's really unfortunate. It's a task that I'm not envious of. Obviously, we saw Nina Turner trying to do that. Uh, you know, yes, I disagree with the Biden administration, but no, I'm not going to say anything crazy like it's like eating half a bowl of shit again because we all saw how that was used against her. Um, so it, I really do, uh, you know, sympathize with this. It's like, how do you walk that line? Because again, unfortunately, unlike a lot of uh, GOP base, uh, the, the the Democratic Party base, they just don't want to hear you uh, attack the president or the party. Um, Bernie also had to walk that line, which is why he refused to criticize Joe Biden, which ultimately, you know, was stupid, but that was his calculus. He's like, you know, a lot of the voters that I actually need to convince, they like Obama and Biden, you know, the, obviously the young people like Zach and I, and the, the lefties socialists, you know, we, we understand Bernie's message, but a lot of the people that Bernie actually needed to appeal to were kind of the MSNBC listening liberals. And the reason why is because those are the motherfuckers that vote. That's the right. unfortunate reality of the situation. You know, as enthusiastic and passionate as a lot of young people like Zach and I are, uh, unfortunately, we don't vote in the same kind of numbers that these older MSNBC loving people do. So, again, unfortunately, as a candidate, you kind of have to appeal to th those people, too, if you want to win the primary. Yeah, I think that's basically spot on. And I think that even though it definitely was a hindrance to somebody like Bernie for not like clearly, uh, because I think in, in Bernie's particular instincts or instance being in a Democratic primary, uh, him not being willing to distinguish himself from the other candidate enough. Uh, we talked yesterday a little bit about this with Kyle, his unwillingness to say like, 
you know, no, I don't think that Joe Biden can be Donald Trump. I can be Donald Trump. Every fucking poll indicates that. Uh, so, yeah, it's a definitely a balancing act. And the thing is, is that the more you lean into not being super explicit with your message and not like fucking castigating the Democratic Party, shitheads like me and Gavin are like, this guy's fake. He's not going to fucking represent you. So you definitely have to balance uh, that uh, across the board. Um, and, and I think that the only other way to really combat that is what Bernie was extremely successful in, and that was uh, bringing in new first-time voters, right? Because I think you kind of have to make a play in either direction. You have to say, okay, I'm either going to uh, take this approach and be much more uh, you know, down the line. And to be fair, I think that Lucas Kuntz and John Fetterman are doing a really good job of doing this. Uh, you know, Despite my disagreements with them on the margins, uh, I think that the way they presented themselves in the post-Bernie uh, you know, primary, uh, especially with, again, how historically unpopular Joe Biden is. Uh, they've done a, a pretty good job of, of utilizing uh, that roadmap. Uh, but I think that the difference between that and um, is the fact that, you know, as Gavin mentioned, most of the people who uh, turn out in a midterm election are going to be even more skewed towards that MSNBC watching demographic, uh, even more so than a general election, which is obviously still, uh, you know, the 55 plus, 65 plus demographic still shatters every other age demographic and turnout by percentages. So, um, you know, I think in a Democratic primary for like a Senate or, a, uh, you know, a statewide race, uh, that makes a lot more sense. But I think if you're going to win at a national level, uh, you would have to kind of pivot to um, more of a, a message of wrangling in all of the disenfranchised voters, all the first time voters. Um, you know, Bernie was extremely successful in bringing in uh, a lot of Latino voters, a lot of Hispanic voters in places like Texas, Nevada, uh, New Mexico, Arizona. And, um, you know, I think that if you go back to the more traditional textbook, um, you know, messaging of the Democratic Party, you'll see the, those voters drift towards the, you know, faux populism of the Republican Party, which we've seen. Uh, but yeah, by and large, I pretty much agree with Gavin's analysis. I think that a lot of this would be helped if we all had open primaries everywhere, because like just from <clears throat> our experience in South Florida, if we had open primaries, our congressperson would have been gone 10 years ago. <clears throat> it's because they keep it so insulated and you have to be a member of their party to participate in democracy. And they keep it that insulated that allows these people to sit there as long as they do. And I think that if we had open primaries, that that would actually help a lot of what you're saying, because I have no problem criticizing people that are worthy of criticism. Their party is secondary to me. Like in that, like, I don't care what party you're in. If you're doing something that's not above board, I'm going to call you out on it. Yeah. Um, the Democrats, I tend to go after more because for a few reasons, one, technically that's my party. So I feel like you got to call out your own people first. Like that's the party I'm technically registered as. So OK. And I also feel like they're just not even trying. So so there's just more of that. But I would not give them a, a pass or Biden a pass just because I'm a member of your party. Fuck no. Yeah. And, and, and if we had open primaries, we would have a lot more flexibility and you would see a lot more people willing to, to stand out, I yeah. think. I totally agree. And oh, sorry, just one thing I'll add real quick is that I know, I know you guys also uh, had Jesse Ventura on, on your guys' uh, show, which was dope. Uh, when he was on our um, show recently, he said something that I really liked too. He might have said this too uh, when he was on your guys' show. He's like, why, why, why does he even say the party on the ballot? 
like when you're voting for people, it should just say like this person, this person, this person, which one do you want? Because it's all just fucking branding. Like if you actually just look at the issues, obviously a guy like Lucas Kuhn's is so much more serious than a guy like Eric Greitens or a guy like John Fetterman is so much more serious than a guy like Dr. Oz. And I think most people, if all they had to look at was the actual issues one by one by one, they would obviously see that. Uh, but again, it's all this fucking branding. It's all of this party bullshit and culture war nonsense and personality shit that I think that really gets in the way too. We're speaking with the Vanguard, uh, Gavin and Zach. Uh, Zach will, I'm sure, be back in a moment. This is a very, very important topic. Speaking of open primaries, um, what is being done in North Carolina right now to Matthew Ho, who is attempting to run for Congress or, well, for the U.S. Senate? He is attempting to run for the U.S. Senate on the Green Party ticket in North Carolina. He clearly met the requirements to get on the ballot. And Mark Elias, who is one of the dirtiest, slimiest swamp dwellers in Washington, D.C., who everyone thinks is a selection integrity guy who protects the Democrats from Republicans. No, he protects the establishment. That's what that's his job. And so he's paid very well to do it. And now it looks like they may have just crossed the line a little too far. There's going to be the Streisand effect of basically turning Matthew Ho into a much more prominent candidate, which is a great thing. We think the world of him. And in, in their haste. By the way, Zach, you should mute yourself. But, but in their, no, it's all good. But in their haste, they decided that trying to just get him thrown off the ballot wasn't enough. Let's call people and threaten them and pose as the Green Party, which is fraud, and they should be prosecuted for that. What do you guys think is going to happen in North Carolina as a result of this? And we all know that it was already trending towards, uh, I think uh, uh, Mudd will likely win on the GOP side. But we all know for sure that if he does win and if the GOP wins in that state, oh, they're just going to blame progressives anyway. Like the same thing will continue. But I think right now, this is a very seminal moment that I don't think people are realizing. If you're going to galvanize sort of like a third party movement, this is a pretty big moment that I think people are underestimating. What do you guys think? Yeah, well, we talked to Matthew on the show a while ago when he was still trying to get ballot access. Really impressed by the guy, super strong candidate. Um, I'm not 100% caught up to date on this story. We need to have him back on the show to you know get all the latest deets from him. Um, but catch me up. You said that they, they, they I heard that they uh, successfully got him off the ballot, right? And I know that that happened. I'll, do, you- I'll do a quick, I'll do a quick rewind because Matthew's actually going to be on the podcast tomorrow night. So essentially, what happened was this. He was getting ballot signatures. They raised some money. They were able to hire, I guess, like an organization that was helping with the ballot signatures as well. The requirement to get on the ballot was about 13,500 some odd signatures that they needed. Um, They ended up getting like 22,000 signatures. And most of them were valid. There were a handful that were not. Uh, A couple of thousand, I think, may have been duplicates or weren't registered properly. But the end result was that they had more than enough registered voters who signed the petition to get Matthew on the ballot as a Green Party candidate. And so the argument from the Democratic Party is, well, you have some of these signatures that are not valid, so therefore we can't trust you and we have to throw you off the ballot. And this is a Democratic Party controlled board of elections in North Carolina, even though it's a purple state. And as a result of that, that you would think that would be bad enough, but this is where it gets really dirty. So as uh, Kyle Kalinske, credit to him on Secular Talk, did a great segment where 
he was able to capture the audio recording of the people who signed the ballot and were getting phone calls from Democratic Party, Party operatives posing as Green Party members, basically telling them, uh, do you really want to sign that petition? Do you really want to rethink that? You know, the Democratic Party is going to potentially lose to the GOP because you guys are going to be on the ballot. And I'm thinking, my God, this is crazy. But what some of the callers did, which was so, so smart, they asked them, who are you with? And they asked them, are you with the Green Party? And they said, yes, that's fraud. And that is that is uh, fe- that is a federal offense. You can go to prison no. for that. And they and will they probably not because the Democrats never get punished for anything. Yeah. Uh, but that's but like some this, Nixon level shit or something. Oh, absolutely. And they always say that things like this always become much, much worse. It's not the act. It's the cover up. And the yeah. fact that they have gone to this length to screw him is so like the Streisand effect. You're going right. to end up getting, you're going to end up turning him into a big, uh, to, into a powerhouse, which he should be because he's actually a really good candidate. He's not a fly-by-night guy. No, I know. We talked to him. Yeah, he's great. And the Democratic Party is already bloodletting out the yin-yang. Now they're really making themselves look bad and they cannot afford to look this bad in North Carolina. And if that doesn't pop off the cherry on the Sunday, this will. The GOP does nothing ever to stop the libertarian candidate from getting on the ballot in any of these states. And in this case, the libertarian candidate is on the ballot in North Carolina, but the Green Party candidate isn't. This is a major scandal that I don't think is getting enough juice yet. But I think if we keep talking about it, it's going to become a much bigger thing. So just to clarify, he has been officially taken off the ballot or he will still be on the ballot as a Green? He is officially off the ballot. They negated his signatures, and now he's suing to his credit. And I think, and he absolutely has a case, one hundred percent. Yeah, no, I I definitely agree with that. So, do you think he's going to try to run as an independent now, or something like that? Jen, what do you think? I don't know. I mean, we're going to find out a lot more tomorrow. He's going to come on and talk to us. I, I am curious about that. He, you know. I actually appreciate things like this because it really shows these state parties for what they are and how they operate. And whenever the Democrats are always pointing their fingers at the GOP as far as, oh, suppressing elections and gerrymandering and all of these things, but yet there's just as many examples of them doing it as well. So I, I like to me, these are these are things that are just exposing them for what they're worth. Yeah, no. Totally agree. Hopefully he is able to somehow get back on the ballot because I totally agree. It could uh, have a Streisand effect um, and lead to him getting more votes than he would otherwise and really being able to make the case for the um, platform that he's running on because he is a super serious you know, anti-war candidate, um, really good on pretty much everything that we talked about. I, I just found that he was... Uh, uniquely serious not that you know other third party candidates or green party candidates are not serious um but a lot of times i feel like uh when you're trying to convince the general public to to actually pull the lever for one of these people uh, a lot of times in their mind they have certain associations like oh all, all these kooky crazy green party people or what like all these fucking dirty hippies and shit you know and then you have a guy like matthew ho who's just a very serious uh candidate who speaks to the issues doesn't get lost in the weeds 
perfect, perfect, uh, you know, senatorial candidate for North Carolina, in my opinion, as a third party option. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to chatting to him, too. I'm going to definitely reach out and get him back on the Vanguard so we can talk about all this because I know it's been going on. I just haven't had the time to do a deep dive yet. So I appreciate you guys filling me in on the deets. Yeah, no. And it's very frustrating. And, uh, you know, it's it's just very clear that it's just an across the board establishment corporate thing way more than it's a partisan thing in terms of them just keeping their friends in office. And Matthew is a great candidate. I also think that it matters that people have served. And he, of course, is somebody who has served. And I think especially when you're talking to people that are more centrist people or even more conservative people, that that that's huge. And you're right about what you were saying about the idea of the Green Party and what the perception is. I've been saying it for a very long time. It sounds niche. It just sounds niche. And for a regular person working in the Rust Belt or wherever you are working, you hear greens, you're thinking tree hugging hippies. And even though they obviously have a much broader platform than that, and I know very many good, serious Green Party people, um, it's just it's not I don't think it's broad appealing enough. It doesn't have a broad enough appeal to to really be the labor party. And really, the only party that's going to really be able to do anything in this country is going to have to be a labor party. Um, right now, we don't have one. And, and until there's that, it, I just don't think there'll be a big enough coalition. And I also want to point out, Paul, friend of the show, um, I don't agree at all with that sentiment. I think that the GOP has one rule and one rule only in their party. In the general election, you vote against the Democrat. That's it. That's their one rule. And they stick to it. Um, if you're going to go based on ballot access, I can tell you this. Joe Jorgensen on the libertarian ticket cost Donald Trump Wisconsin in 2020. You didn't hear a word from the GOP. Oh, my God, the libertarian took our votes away. You will never hear that because they don't care. Their attitude is, well, if we lost, we'll just figure out a way to win next time. That's their attitude. The Democratic attitude is, uh, man, we really got to stop those progressives from having an opportunity to vote against us. That's the problem. That's what it is. And this is why they're, the, the, the GOP is the varsity and the Democrats are the JV. And as Jen, you always like to point out, it's designed that way. Yes, Definitely. Uh, going back to that Kyle interview, we were talking about the analogy of the uh, Harlem Globetrotters and the Washington Generals. You know, it's all it's all just a farce. It's all just, you know, control opposition. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and and going back to the Joe Jorgensen thing, you're totally correct. I remember we did a video about that at the time back in the day when our channel was still uh, really small. Um, but yeah, we were like, you know, looking into the data of the actual vote. And it's like we always hear about, oh, Jill Stein you know, split the vote and Jill Stein was a spoiler candidate. And we were looking at this, we we're like, wait, was Joe Jorgen actually a spoiler candidate though? Did she actually cost Trump the election? And it, it looks like it's possible, right? But you, again, like you said, you never hear the GOP talking about that. You never hear them blaming fucking Joe Jorgensen for losing the election in 2020. You hear them blaming a lot of other things for losing the elections in 2020. Uh, totally but, Gavin, yeah. believe me when I tell you, it was totally rigged. I totally won that election. They took it away from me, and we're totally coming back in 24. Why, Jen? Because we're making America great again. Again. That's what it's all about. Do you guys but think he's again. gearing up to run again, announce his candidacy? Oh, yeah. The, yeah. 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 I think he sees DeSantis as a threat, and I think he's uh, prepared yeah. uh, probably more than ever to really – and especially right now because I think he fears that there could be some type of a legal issue that could be coming down on him. Um, he doesn't want to take any chances. And if he becomes a candidate, 
a national figure who's fundraising tens of millions of dollars, it's going to be very hard for the legal yeah. side of things to really. You think uh, he's going to get back on Twitter in any way or anything like that? Because that's the only thing that I feel like he's like just so not a part of the conversation right now because of his lack of a presence on social media. Uh, that's the only reason why I think like he's going to maybe struggle a little bit more. Uh, but at the same time, yeah. I don't think DeSantis is as strong as a candidate as people pretend he is. You know, he was oh, strong. He you think he, he is? Yes. Well, here, we're in Florida. We're in Florida. I, I know, I know. Well, respond to respond to this thing because here's what I've kind of been thinking. I, I felt like DeSantis was a uniquely strong candidate for the coronavirus era and that he was able to channel all of this kind of populist outrage about lockdowns and all that crap. Um, but now that that's all kind of passed and that like it seems that society, for better or worse, has moved on from the pandemic, like what's going to be his thing? Is it just don't say gay and, and all this culture war nonsense? Is that really his whole thing? He's just really, you know what, his whole thing is really kind of looking like populist. I mean, his whole thing is really looking like someone who's going to stick it to the insiders and he's not going to do what they say he's going to do. And we're, you know, Florida is a very county strong state. And I think that he's definitely appealing to the very libertarian red aspect of not just here, but everywhere. And yet doing so while still separating himself enough from Trump which is really difficult to do considering he's Trump's Frankensteinian monster. And so for him to have been able to sort of pull away from that enough that now they're kind of rivals is pretty impressive actually to me. I I find him, I find him to be very threatening politically. Yeah. And I also think that the other issue with DeSantis that doesn't really get talked about enough is that he has uh, the Republican base on both sides, really finding him appealing. You've got the MAGA base, which is right-wing populism and obviously the extremism that is associated with that, who find him to be an acceptable solution to uh, Trump. We all know that the, the that the real solution is a left-wing populist president. It is long overdue, and we know that that's what the end game is going to be. Now, whether that comes in 24 or 28 will be determined soon enough. But in the interim right now, DeSantis is most likely tracking to the White House because he has an exceptionally high approval rating amongst independents and GOPers, which is all that matters. It doesn't matter if the Democrats think he's the devil because they can't win a lion's share anyway. Um, His appeal as a governor whose economy is strong, we have a housing crisis here in the state that isn't fought on the on the lines that need to be fought on. We have a good group in Orlando that we connect with that is really fighting on that front. But that needs to be a statewide fight and it isn't happening yet. DeSantis always goes where the where we're sort of like the you know the political winds are moving. So for example, recently no one talks about this, but we talk about it a lot. DeSantis got a major political win in the environmental movement when there was a net metering bill, which is basically anti-solar throughout the state of Florida because there is a energy monopoly. Next Era Energy, I'm sure you're familiar with them. They own FPL, Florida Power and Light. They had a net metering bill of anti-solar that made it to the governor's desk. Why? There were three GOP state senators who voted against it, but three Democratic senators stepped in and made sure that it got to DeSantis's desk, and then he vetoed the bill. So thanks a lot for making his life that much easier. He didn't need it to be easier to begin with, but now you just gave him a political win that he didn't need. And so while everyone is out there, and they are absolutely right about the don't say gay bill, this is a bill that is tailor-made for the religious crazies who do not want any thought outside of the Bible to exist in these classrooms. Believe me, you think you've got uh, the Bible Belt across I-70 between St. Louis and Kansas City. We got the same damn problem down here. If you get outside of the metro areas, Orlando, Tampa, even, well, Jacksonville's 
pretty conservative. But between Orlando and Tampa and Miami, Fort Lauderdale and West Palm Beach, you've got it all throughout Florida. You have got you go to Vero Beach. You've got a church on every street corner. This is a huge part of the culture that people in blue areas really do not understand that they have engulfed our electoral process, that people who believe in, you know, sky angels think that it's their job to tell people how to live. And so DeSantis is simply placating into that. But what's really interesting about what he's doing is that while you've got all these other governors, including Governor Abbott, saying, let's just ban abortion across the board, he's being smart about it and saying, we need a 15-week abortion ban. That is placating to both sides. That's basically saying, I'm not going to ban it completely, but I'm going to put it in a position where it looks like I'm really catering to the Christian right. But at the same time, not banning abortion in a state where when I run for president and he will run, that is going to make him look like a compromised candidate. He is one of the shrewdest political operatives I have ever seen. Like he is that good. You think he's going to beat Trump? I think he would. Yeah. Right now, yes, I do. I think Trump is carrying way too much baggage. I think there's a lot of people who think that there is this element of society completely crumbling right now, which it is. And I think Trump would just toss gasoline on top of it all over again. And Trump has a lot of access to grind. So if he was out there, I think he would look at it as, I'm totally going to take care of these people that screwed me over. He's to- He would totally do that. Whereas DeSantis has that same element. But this guy was bag. He served in combat. He is. There's that. I, yeah, That's he another is, thing. He, he has is, served. Yeah, he is Ivy educated. He appeals to those voters in Arizona, those yeah, voters in Georgia. But, I mean, the GOP base didn't even care when Trump said, oh, I prefer people that didn't get caught talking about John McCain. Do you really think they cared that much about service? And No, not the base. The base couldn't care less. They're going to vote wherever the wind blows. But independent-minded people such as me, like I think for myself, and I'm not necessarily going to follow a line, I prefer a commander-in-chief that has served in the military. I prefer that. Uh, to me, that makes sense. I, I find that reasonable. I think that there's something honorable about it, even if I don't agree with the mission. And I don't think it speaks to somebody's experience, character, and how they go about working as a team, how they, I think, yeah, I think it matters. And I think it matters to moderates and independents, especially that are anti-war. Honestly, and, I didn't even know that Ron DeSantis served in the military. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, he and sure did. Bag. Yeah. So, the, and, and the other element here, which I still think is the biggest one of all, and the reason why he's tracking towards the White House, it would be one thing if we had universal health care, a living wage, an actual environmental plan, like a clean energy grid, which the president has the authority to implement right now. If we had things like that, end of the wars, if we were actually dealing with the crises of our time that affect everybody. Then you can lean into the culture war. If you're leaning into the culture war before the economic war, you've already lost. And because DeSantis has made the state economy overall strong in Florida for more people than not, there's still effed up problems everywhere. The environment's not as strong as it should be. The housing crisis is absolutely insane. The renting crisis is even worse. And on top of that, Yes, you can focus on the fact that they are placating towards the fringes of society when it comes to the culture war, always picking on the most vulnerable of our people. But DeSantis wins that fight because economically, people are tired of this shit. 
if we were in a situation where we actually had an economy that was working for us, people like Trump and DeSantis could never succeed. How did DeSantis are, make the economy good in Florida? What was his what, how did, what did he do to make it good? As simple as not shutting down the state. I hate to say it, but that was a huge part of it. And what he ended up doing because of that, people forget that it, it really has been about three years now that we're dealing with all of the well, two and a half years. There is a long window of time that has come about since the pandemic started. What a lot of people don't know is that I know a lot of people think Silicon Valley has relocated to Denver and to Austin and places like that. They have been relocating to South Florida for like a year now. You have this whole new tech industry of people that have been coming to Florida. That is a big part of the reason why the housing crisis is getting even worse, just like it is in California. Wherever tech goes, that's where the problem comes. But they bring the jobs with them. And not only that, but there were at least a couple of million people who moved to the state over the course of the pandemic because they thought, well, you know what? My state shut down. I can't make money. I have no stimulus checks. I have no universal health care. I need something. If, if I go to Florida, I'm going to have this opportunity. That is exactly why DeSantis is flying under the radar right now. See, people who are in Florida know these things. You wait till he gets to the national stage, yeah. and that's coming. So that's where he becomes this very dangerous animal. And listen, we love Tom Hartman. And the thing, the, the post that he put out the other day regarding how the GOP infrastructure is changing at the state level, especially with the attorney general and the secretary of state, yeah, that is a valid point. But if you think that Joe Biden is capable of beating Ron DeSantis – in an election Fuck where there's no. no pandemic. I don't know what you're thinking. And I oh, love yeah. you, Tom, but you're living in another universe. Yeah, no, Ron that, that's DeSantis, Ron DeSantis against Joe Biden. Put it down right now. I would bet money on it. He not only would win the presidency, he'd win the popular vote, too. Yeah, so, I, think, I think Trump would beat Biden, too, if it came to that. My only other question, though, about DeSantis is that. Uh, I mean, I agree that if the election was held today, he would win. But what do you think? How do you think he will fare after the bruising primary process where he's going to be getting attacked constantly by Donald Trump? And, you know, one thing that Trump is pretty good at is humiliating his political opponents. We all remember what he did to Marco Rubio and, you know, Chris Christie, who was also at one point the big, you know, Republican governor that everyone would say, oh, this guy's definitely going to become president. He's so good. He's so great. Uh, Trump, you know, fucking easily did away with him. Well, if I'm DeSantis and I'm on that stage, it's very simple. I would point out the fact that number one, well, look, you know, with all due respect, Mr. President or Mr. Trump, you know, and I appreciate the support that you provided me with here in Florida. But I got to tell you, you know, when it comes to things like serving your country, you know, I served my country. I was in JAG. You avoided the Vietnam War multiple times claiming you had bone spurs. I mean, I don't know about you, but, you know, we need a commander in chief who actually cares about the troops, who's actually served with them. Peter, there's that, things that you're trying to campaign for DeSantis. We're going to somebody's going to pull this clip and say that we're working as, as like, you know, hey, listen, I said, make DeSantis. I said, make America great again, again. And then the, the Trump campaign uh, put it in like a press release. And we're like, you got to be kidding me. He really took what I said. And yeah. Well, they're, they, you know, they're not too far. I mean, we're in we're in Broward County. We're right next to Palm Beach County. 
where Mar-a-Lago is. And, you know, I have no doubt there are people who see the show, but, you know, we were saying it over and over again. And the next, you know, we looked at this and I'm telling you, Jen and I looked at this and thinking, holy shit, somebody on the show really heard this and thought, that's a totally great idea. I'm totally going to use it for myself. Uh, again, really- the only thing I, the only thing I worry about is that like, I mean, I agree to independent voters, perhaps that would be a convincing line of argument against this, against Trump. Uh, but we have to remember it's the GOP base, which is actually voting right. in the nominating process for the primary. True. And those same kind of arguments were used ad nauseum against Trump. Like, oh, you don't respect the troops. And like, you don't care about decorum and civility. You're not a serious person. The voters didn't give a fuck. They wanted someone that was irreverent yeah. and that was out of the uh, regular parameters of what a candidate could say. They don't like the uh, you know, they like the fact that Trump is uh, a little bit crazy, you know, and if anything, I feel like Ron DeSantis is just I don't I don't know. I just feel like he doesn't quite have that same performative ability and charisma again, not to give credit to Donald Trump. But when I see Ron DeSantis speak, I don't know. I It's just it doesn't have the same like, you know, quality totally, to it. No, I totally agree with you that there is this element of showmanship that Trump brings to the table that is absolutely underestimated by a lot of people. I think the other reason that I could still say that Trump could do it again is because the corporate establishment and Trump is part of it, but there's a whole different element of society that really thinks he's this Molotov cocktail that's just going to shatter it and finally break it as it needs to be broken. Um, We are at this point now where, you know, we talk about the fringe elements of society that are so desperate that don't have anything. And when people start saying, oh, if we just took the guns away, that's going to solve the crisis. That is not going to solve the crisis of desperate people in society who want it all to burn to the ground. You're lucky there isn't a mass shooting every single day in multiple places all over the country. Like you, you, you go berserk because there was a mass shooting in Highland Park yesterday. There could be a dozen of them in a month. And telling people we're just going to take your guns like that's going to suck. No, when people are desperate, they'll find anything. What if they start trapping? What if they start strapping bombs to their chests and showing up in places like they would do in the UK, like they would do in other parts of Europe? Because they would do that and they would take 25 people with them when they would do it. Could you imagine if a human bomb went off in one of these places? I mean, it's like. Or driving a big car through a crowd. Yeah, totally. They tried to do that in Times Square. If you squeeze people tight enough, they will turn to fascism. Agreed. Agreed. Like at some point you have to recognize. Here's my other question about DeSantis. Uh, Do you think he's, uh, do you think if he lost an election, if he did become president, do you think he would try to hold on to power? Do you think he would respect the uh, democratic result and uh, concede? I think he would. Um, I, I just think that he's, you know, look, he really leans into the whole men of honor thing. Like the military is very important to him. Like he really, um, he's also not a warmonger, which is a big deal. Like Debbie Wasserman Schultz, our, well, goes without saying, um, she is 10 times the warmonger than he is. I mean, he talks all the time about how Venezuela is this and Cuba is this, but you never hear DeSantis saying we have to have regime change in Venezuela. We have to have regime change in Cuba. You hear that from Debbie. You'll, you'll get that from her. And that's the Democrat. So there really is something to be said for him walking this fine line. Like I said, he is an amazing politician. Not that I support, but watching his political jujitsu, if you will, is really, really interesting. And people who continue to underestimate him, 
you know, they, you know, underestimate them at your own peril. That's yeah. what I just keep going back to that 2016 stage and there's all these like stodgy fucking Republicans up there. And then Trump just easily doing away with all of them. And I just can't help but see DeSantis is another one of the, you know, a Ted Cruz, for example. Um, I just can't yeah. see like, you think, he's, still, you think he's that much better? I think, to, oh, DeSantis is that much better. And Ted um, Cruz? Oh, yeah. Ted Cruz sure. is, uh, from what we've been told, the most disliked politician on Capitol Hill. He's the most disliked senator amongst the Senate. And that's really saying something. That's saying not, something. Not that, and, and listen, I don't even think Ted Cruz is that evil. I, I don't think, think Ted Cruz likes Ted Cruz. He's that big of a slime ball. Oh. He has no integrity. He doesn't stand for anything. And the second a crisis hits, like what happened a couple of years ago, he gets on a jet and gets out of town because he's a because he's pussy. a coward. Yeah. he's pussy. And let's right. be honest: the, his wife might be more powerful than him. <laughs> because of her proximity to, I'll tell um, you what. I'll tell you what. Yeah. I think if Trump badmouthed uh, Casey DeSantis, that Ron wouldn't have just been licking his boots the next day. No I'll chance. tell you that. No, no, no way. Well, doesn't she have like cancer or something? That yeah. would be pretty. That would be pretty yeah. fucked up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But even yeah. if she didn't, if he made fun of his, if he called, her, well, first of all, she's beautiful. But like, if he called his wife a dog. He wouldn't stand for that and then bow down like Ted Cruz did and kiss the boot. I don't. Think I don't know, man. I feel like I there's no yeah. bottom to the barrel of fucking Demer- Republicans just doing whatever they have to do to kiss the ring in order to, you know, become more powerful. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I maybe you guys definitely know better than me coming from Florida. So I trust you guys and We're I'll definitely, I'll stop underestimating him because yeah. up to this point, I've been saying like, you know, we're, we're beyond the coronavirus lockdown, all that shit that he was so popular for. No one's going to care as much anymore, but I guess you guys have made a pretty good case for the fact that it has, you know, help the economy in Florida to the extent that he can really, you know, run on that issue. Also, he's been fundraising left and right. Oh, yeah. He's been fundraising all around the country. He's been having fundraisers everywhere from New York to California. Um, And he's not like, like, he's not running for governor this year. That like the Democrats seem to think that there's some sort of gubernatorial race that they're running Mm -hmm. a candidate in, but he's not running for governor this year. He's not? No. He's already he won. Is, but he's, right? he's running right. for president already. He's running for president. He's already yeah. won governor. The only people that don't know that are our state Democrats that think they're actually mounting a, a viable race. You know, when you uh, should run, Jen. I won't ever run a statewide race. <laughs> let's get Jen. Let's just make sure we get Jen to Congress in 24. <laughs> I won't run a statewide race. It's too much here. I assume, Gavin, you guys will definitely lend a hand making sure that Jen uh, gets a nice boost. We all have a role to play if uh, if that comes to pass. But oh, yeah. But in the interim, I think this is a great place to end the conversation because obviously I think we all agree and it's looking more and more likely by the day that Biden is going to face a primary challenge in 24. It's really a question of how that's going to unfold and if ultimately, you know, post midterm disaster, whatever it's going to be, uh, you know, he may ultimately decide to step aside. Uh, Where do you see it going? Because obviously you guys had the conversation yesterday about Marianne Williamson. I have also been vocal that I think Governor Pritzker in Illinois, uh, he's got a little bit of an it factor to him and he's got a number of things working in his favor, too. Uh, There's a lot of people who want to see Bernie go a third round. I I don't think that's going to happen. How do you see it unfolding and what would you like to see happen? I'm just praying for a, a primary at all. You know, <laughs> that, that's honestly all I want. Um, for one, you know, just to 
just to be honest, I really love primary season. I love elections in general. It's, you know, one of the big reasons why I became a political junkie in the first place is just because I've always, you know, loved following them, loved keeping up with them. And, you know, the horse race shit, I'm an unabashed lover of the horse race. I um, uh, I will not apologize for that. Um, so, you know, I hope there's a primary just so we don't have to sit here and watch the Republicans have all the fun while our fucking corpse of a leader of the party, you know, is tries to it's just going to be so depressing right so i hope there's a primary at all um i think there will be a primary i think that uh joe biden is pretending that he's going to run again because he thinks it's going to if he doesn't if he admits that he won't it's going to you know reveal how weak he is and that's going to make the democrats more vulnerable in the midterms but i I imagine after the midterms i have to imagine that after the midterms they're going to be like okay not running again uh, they might try to force Kamala, but I still think it's going to trigger a primary. Um, and, and then again, you know, regardless of the left, I hope there's a strong left candidate. Uh, but regardless of that, I think that there's even just normie centrist, regular Democrats that want Joe Biden out of there. Again, we have guys like Howard Stern. We got guys like J.B. Pritzker, as you mentioned, who's, you know, for all uh, for the even though he's a billionaire, at least he has accomplished some of the stuff that he ran on when he uh, ran for governor of Illinois. So at least he has actual accomplishments he can point to, unlike Joe Biden, who hasn't fulfilled any of the you know promises he made on his platform. So, you know, you have that. You have a lot of other people. You know, I like Marion Williamson. Unfortunately, I don't necessarily think she's the right person to kind of be the heir to Bernie Sanders. And the reason I say that is because I just don't think uh, the, the, the thing that Bernie uh, really lacked was kind of his killer instinct. We saw that with Joe Biden. He refused to, you know, uh, to really distinguish himself, as Zach said, from Joe Biden. And w- while Marion Williamson certainly would distinguish herself, she's also just a little bit too goddamn nice, in my opinion. Like, she really uh, is a... Uh, I don't know the word. She just almost gives him too much credit sometimes when I hear her talk about Joe Biden and his presidency. I'm like, we need someone to be even stronger in that regard. So I worry that she would fall into some of the same traps that Bernie did. Plus, she doesn't have the name recognition or any political experience. So, you know, I'm not anti Marion Williamson. I'm just not necessarily convinced that she would do the job or be able to get it done. Um, but yeah, I, ultimately, I just hope for a primary. You know, I, I really just hope there's a primary because in that event, I do think it's possible that. You know, even a guy like John Fetterman, if he wins the Senate race, um, sure he will only have he will only have had like a year or two in the Senate. Uh, but who gives a fuck? He'll still be a United States senator. I think that he could jump in the race, and I think that Obama he's, did that. Obama right. did that. Obama exactly did that. You know, people don't care how long you've been in the senator as long as you have that title, Senator Fetterman. People are going to respect you a hell of a lot more. Uh, so he's, you know, if I had my pick of of everyone uh, besides Bernie, who I agree probably isn't going to actually run again. Uh, it would it would probably be Fetterman. I really do think you would make a strong ca- candidate. Um, have some serious disagreements with him. Obviously, Israel being the number one, uh, kind of like an Andrew Yang thing going on there, where it's like, God, I, I yeah, that that's just even Nina Turner kind of went to the dark side on that issue, in my opinion. But uh, again, besides that, I, I think Fetterman's probably the best the Democrats have right now. And I, I, I like some of J.B. Pritzker, but still just him being a billionaire is a little bit too much for me to out, outwardly endorse him. Um, but again, I, I think Fetterman's the best shot they have right now. I think that's been proven in a state like Pennsylvania, which is uh, the kind of state the Democrats need to be able to win if they're going to be at all serious in 2024. And the fact that he's actually, you know, one of their only candidates that's winning uh, nationwide right now, I think, you know, tells you what you need to know about his appeal. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Yeah, and I definitely think that Fetterman, um, there is something to him, and especially a guy like that campaigning around the country in a hoodie and shorts is right. um, is very appealing, considering that the Democratic Party, as Jen likes to say, 
either is going to become the party of labor again or it is going to go into the dustbin of history. They are much closer to a complete uh, disintegration as an infrastructural party uh, than they think. Um, There are people who are desperate for something else. And the more the tactics we saw that's happening now in North Carolina come to the surface will, you know, will will be very, um, will be very interesting to see how it unfolds. Um, I think, uh, I think Marion Williamson has a lot of potential. Um, I think a lot of people uh, base that off of her first run. Um, But again, it really comes down to whether or not she or somebody else is able to galvanize that Bernie movement. Jen and I have always maintained that the person who was most ready to do that was Nina Turner. Unfortunately, because of her two congressional losses and the fact that she has basically become a martyr for the Democratic establishment makes her that much more difficult. And if she were to be the one to primary Joe, oh, Lord, the hell, the the hell that would break loose as a result of that. But maybe that's what we need. I mean, you know, I certainly would not object to it. Um, But I can also see where, you know, she taking the time off. And there's also a lot of people who feel that the GOP is, is simply unstoppable in 24. And so rather than take their shot, then they're going to wait till 28. So it'll be interesting to see who ultimately comes out of this. But we are definitely 1,000% in agreement. Joe needs to be primaried in 24. Yeah. And do, you, do you agree that Fetterman's particularly the best shot the left has? I'm not sure yet. Um, I think that he's very solid. Uh, I think it's going to be a combination. I mean, again, it's way too early to tell. Because like I said, I think there are a handful of people who are considering the prospect of even potentially primarying Joe. I know there's a lot of people who are just kind of waiting around and seeing what's going to happen. But I think because more than anything else, not just that Joe is such a colossal failure, but the fact that Kamala is so in over her head and the fact that Buttigieg is so far in over his head. He's even worse than Kamala from this perspective. Kamala has no responsibilities. Buttigieg is in charge of the Department of Transportation, and you've got Bernie Sanders out there literally telling this guy how to do his damn job. That is bad. And of course, it's not. And Fetterman's one of those people, by the way. Fetterman is one of those people that's out here scolding him and being like, do your fucking job, bro. Yeah. Well, look, you know, I told Mr. Buttigieg that he has to go out there and do his job. He's not doing a good job. Unfortunately, if I was president, I would have appointed a much better person to the Department of Secretary. But I, I was going to say, who thought that Pete Buttigieg was actually qualified and would do a good job in that in that role? Like, what were his qualifications for that? Being a crappy mayor? Zero. I mean, like, I don't get it. Yeah, this is really no different. This is the reverse of of Trump. You know, everything's OK when things going OK. But the second a crisis hits, like it did in Trump's latter half of his first term as president, he was an abject failure at COVID. And as a result, he got kicked out. And mm-hmm. Buttigieg, who was cruising along thinking, oh, I'm totally going to be just fine running for president. Well, guess what, pal? Now you have a crisis in your line of work and you are an abject failure at it. Yep. And it's going to be hung around your neck like a noose as and- long as you're in politics, as it should be. 
And what- maybe we can move back to the best thing he could do, Gavin. The best thing he could do is move to Indianapolis and run for Congress. Mm. That is the best chance he's got at having any future in elected politics. I, I disagree. I think the best thing he could do is actually project a goddamn ounce of strength and actually do his job, punish the airline industries. And that would actually make him popular because what Americans fucking hate more than anything is these goddamn airline companies. Everyone hates the airlines. That's one thing that unites every goddamn American in this country. And I, it just blows my mind that Pete Buttigieg won't even do what would clearly be politically popular for him to do, which actually would be to do his job. And then he could run on that and say, you know, when you guys were getting fucked by these corporations, I stood up to them. Uh, but he won't even pretend to do that because he's actually such a bitch to, you know, corporate America, etc. cetera. Uh, but one more thing about Fetterman that I just wanted to say is the, the only other reason why I'm so high on Fetterman is that, you know, the, the, the Republicans are either going to nominate Trump or DeSantis in 2024. And obviously the Republicans love to be alpha male chess beaters. Um, they love to pretend to project this strength and masculinity and all this stuff. Picture a debate stage where Trump is standing next to fucking John Fetterman. Who's right. going to look like the alpha male in that situation? Who's going to look like the bigger, yeah. more serious force? It's going to be Fetterman. He would make DeSantis or Trump look like a little bitch. So I just want to see that. I think that the left needs more like tough guy energy. You know, so many people associate the left with these like feckless, elite, coastal liberals, losers. Uh, we need more like working class, just like a big like guy that looks like he could be a fucking janitor at a high school or a fucking garbage truck man or something like that. Just to bring yeah. that force into politics that so often is lacking on the left side of things. So that would be my, obviously that's kind of just like an optics, you know, that's not very substantive, but I still think it matters. I oh, think yeah. it matters. I, I think agree. it matters a lot. We did an interview on this show a while ago with um, Brian Kloss, who wrote this book, Corruptible, and it talks about how our primate brains are what cause us to elect certain types of characters to leadership positions, even though those characteristics don't serve us in modern times like yep. they did when we were throwing our feces at each other. Right. And yet our primate brains still do pick the alpha male. And, and that it, it's unfortunate that we think that way, but it is it is a valid point. It is a valid point. And not just the alpha male, but who's the more likable guy that you want to have a beer with? You know, the whole George Bush over um, Al Gore thing. It was like oh, literally he basically, basically won that election because people would rather have had a beer with him than the Democrat. Uh, we would argue he didn't win that election. Well, that's we fair. He was never legitimate. <laughs> I agree with that. I agree with that. But uh, the, the only reason he did as well as he did uh, yes. was quite literally, it, it really did literally boil down to that. People were like, well, this guy seems nice and I would rather drink a beer with him. And, um, <laughs> and times have definitely changed since then. That is for sure. Yeah. And as we stand right now, um, I think there are some options that are out there. But uh, from an electoral standpoint, yes, I do agree that Fetterman uh, presents a very unique future for the Democratic Party. Um, the only issue is, is that are they really going to embrace it? I think right now they're embracing him because they know they need to keep the majority in the Senate. Right. Um, but once that happens, they're going to try to silence him. Yeah, that I mean, they did try to they did yeah. try to screw him again by uh, propping up Connor Lamb. If it, Connor Lamb had ever, if you looked at the, how many people in the Democratic establishment endorsed Connor Lamb, oh, it's yeah. like a whole page of names. And then you look at how many people endorsed Fetterman, it's like five five, five names. So yeah. the Democratic Party, if they had had their way, Connor Lamb would have been the nominee, which just shows you how fucking out of touch they are. Um, but uh, but again, it's not like they have been propping up Fetterman this whole time or anything like that. They only reluctantly accepted him after it became you know beyond clear that he was going to win. Um, but he's still a challenge to the establishment as far as I see. Of course, we'll have to see how he conducts himself if he becomes senator. Um, but at least that's the way I, I, at least that's how I hope it shapes out. And, and we can leave on this note. 
the reason Buttigieg is not doing anything is because he still thinks he's going to run for president and he needs <laughs> that sweet, sweet airline executive money. And if he were to do anything to them right now in lieu of all of their wonderful profits they've made at the hands of Trump and Biden over the last few years, whew, that money go bye bye, baby. That is why we have to break this corrupt corporate special interest system. And so with that said, my friend, please plug anything you want to plug before you go. The Vanguard is quite the podcast. You guys have some great <laughs> guests like we do, and you certainly provide some really entertaining content. So the floor is yours, my friend. Yeah. I mean, just follow us on The Vanguard. Um, just type that into YouTube and our stuff will come up as the first uh, result. Uh, you can follow me at Gavin CMB on Twitter. That's what it says at uh, the little bottom left of my you know, uh, rectangle. So you know, hit that up if you want to follow me. Um, but yeah, th- that's pretty much it as far as promotional stuff goes. You know, I think we do a pretty good job over at the Vanguard. We did have a really cool interview with Kyle Kalinsky yesterday, someone who we've been wanting to talk to for so, so long, finally made that happen. Uh, so go check that out. If you're a you know longtime fan of secular talk, I think you'll probably enjoy a lot of the uh, questions we asked him and conversation we kind of had with the dude. Uh, so that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for having us on, guys. It was a really good chat. Really appreciate hearing your um, insights coming from Florida, too, specifically about DeSantis. You gave me a lot to think about there. Um, so yeah, really appreciate it. Uh, we'll have to talk again sometime soon. And it does look like Zach just, uh, yes, just Zach's showed up back. again. Zach's back. <laughs> he came, but he came just in time to just in time to you know say goodbye. <laughs> yeah, good. sorry about that, guys. I went through a wild tunnel and then it started raining and there was no cell phone service. But I was listening along in the car. Uh, you, uh, it was a great chat, and uh, we'll definitely have to do it again. Thank you, guys. Absolutely. Be happy to come on. Thanks so much, Gavin and Zach. Have a great day. We'll be in touch. Yeah, thanks so much, Janet. By the way, what's your name? Is it Tom? Peter. 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 I'm so sorry, Peter. I, it's just because it's never at the bottom of your screen, so I fucking forget. But I I'm, kind of, I'm kind of a mystery. What can I say? <laughs> a mystery. Great to see you, man. <laughs> well, yeah, it's always good to talk with you guys. And uh, yeah, let's do it again sometime soon. Sounds Bye, Gavin. Good. Peace. Take care. So, always fun. I think that... Um, I think there are a lot of people that really, um, a couple of things. Um, I think he made some really good points about Fetterman. I definitely agree with that. I think that that is the difference between somebody like him and somebody like a Williamson. And, you know, there is sort of like that fighting spirit that is needed, uh, especially from a Pennsylvania standpoint uh, that I think is very appealing. Um, But, you know, I think a lot of people have a role to play, um, you know, in this, in this whole thing. Um, and, and that's really the whole galvanizing of it. Well, let's just say Fetterman is the one, but that doesn't mean that other people shouldn't be running and that we shouldn't be building up stronger coalitions. Ultimately at the end, it becomes whoever that person is going to be. But if there ever is a time to really sort of change the way things are going, and especially in lieu of what just happened in North Carolina. Yeah. I, I really do think, um, that we could be onto something, but I also think it is our job doing this show to really inform people as to, you know, they talk about the Trump train. Well, the DeSantis train is very, very strong. And I think there are way too many people who are underestimating it. Even these two guys who are politicos all day, every day, thinking that DeSantis isn't that big a deal. Oh, yes, he is. The Republicans don't really have anybody else. So the Republicans that are wanting to get away from Trump, the Republicans that see him as sort of like a blight on, you know, conservative decorum, those are the people that would love DeSantis because he is basically Trump. He's Trump light without offensive tweets. 
So I, love, I, I also love the fact that Rick Scott is going to be put into a very difficult position. <laughs> well, he's the worst. Like he he's is the worst. Absolutely and worst. ironically enough, ladies and gentlemen, Rick Scott is very close to Trump, and he does. And Trump, uh, uh, Scott, and DeSantis do not get along. So that is a that's also a major point of contention because Rick Scott actually thought he was going to be president. Yeah. Well, Hilarious. All right, what do we have coming up? Tomorrow night, we are going to be speaking with Nomiki Konst. Behave yourselves, but ask questions. Please do. She is, is a, running for the new, for it's a new state. District 59. Senate, state Senate. State Senate District 59. And we have invited Kristen Gonzalez, the DSA and AOC endorsed candidate. They have not gotten back to us about potentially coming on. Although I would imagine after this interview tomorrow, they might be. And then we are going to be speaking with none other than a central talking point of today's podcast, Matthew Ho, running for U.S. Senate on the Green Party ticket in North Carolina. Or not. Or not. We'll see if we can get him on anyway. We'll see what happens. As far as no, I'm concerned. It, it's, it's really absurd. It is. It is absurd. I, I, again, it's unfortunate because the one thing that the Republicans have done really well and very methodical is stack all the lower courts. Yeah, they have. Stack all the the you know local nonpartisan positions so that these types of matters. So now he's going to file suit against them, but these kinds of matters are being decided and handled by right wing jurists. Correct. But so, no, if there ever was an opportunity, you see, this is what will happen. And then the right wing jurists will side with the Green Party candidate and the Democrats will cry fouls. Oh, my God, they're just trying to stop. They're like, no, you guys just don't have anything. This has been a long time coming. It just it's a very unique time in history. You know, it really. Do you have anything else set up? Do we have anything else coming like next week? Robert Asensio is going to be coming on. He's running for Congress in Florida's 26. 20- 7th or 26th Congressional District. So that will be a good conversation. Um, We've got some other irons in the fire, uh, some book guests that'll be coming on. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's the summer, guys. It's the quiet time. We're not in real campaign mode yet. But if there is an opportunity, Jen, if there is an opportunity potentially in your schedule to get up to New York uh, to help Eulene and Gustavo with their races, you know, I'm definitely going to I just don't know how I do that. I mean, I'm here until like there's like four days in the beginning of August between when I get home from here and when we go on our trip to Boston. And then I'm not back from there until the 14th of August. And then Graham starts school. All right. So I think that the only possibility it's would be to potentially come up, uh, you know, to make sort of like a stopover, if you will, in New York for a day or two uh, on your way to Boston. That's probably I, don't, well, I don't travel like you do where I just sort of put pile as much stuff in. No, my, but this is uh, no, but this is different because you have a month advance notice. This isn't something that's happening tomorrow. No, okay. I have a month advance notice, but I have plans that are already made and airline tickets and stuff. Well, either way, I'll be there. So you can well, join. Wonderful. If not, no big deal. So we hope you guys enjoyed it this afternoon. Uh, Fiesta edition of Generational Change. But remember. We don't do this for our health. We're actually doing it to try to help. And if you guys feel so inclined, you know what's coming. Patreon.com forward slash generational change. You like that cute Lulu sticker that Jen has, uh, you know, made? I, I think it's really awesome. And okay, I think it- now you're giving false advertising because the actual Lulu sticker doesn't look like that. But it looks pretty damn cute. 
sunglasses. The actual Lulu sticker is that, but without a hat and sunglasses. Fair enough. It still looks pretty cool. I it is very cute. It really does look, it's very, very, you know, resembling of her. It is. It look, yeah. Well, now you got to really make it happen. That's the thing. So hopefully you will. But remember, guys, if you are so inclined and you want us to be able to help candidates like Senator Rivera, patreon.com forward slash generational change. We do contribute to non-corporate candidates running for office. We also do beach cleanups. We do homeless care packages. We do community gardens. We do a lot of things. Things that are really about transforming politics into service. And I am, by the way, I am back to my community closet trailer uh, idea again, like sort of working through that. I have a friend who's going to possibly help and work to see if she, I can get a grant. I have dreams of having a community closet and a trailer. I could see that. You mean kind of like one of those, um, like the thing that Kat Uden has, like one of those type of trailers? Kind that of, yeah, kind of like, yeah, yeah, a little bit bigger, something that looks like kind of like a nice boutique type thing that can show up at events and have like clothes for people for job interviews or for court or, you know. That's great. That's yeah. great. That really sounds good. Yeah, right. yeah I know, but I, you know, it, I mean, I need a grant. Guys, patreon.com forward slash generational change. For as little as $5 a month, let's help, Gen, let's help Jen get that community closet. I do. I want a community closet. <laughs> so if you guys like that idea, wonderful. We'll have to bring it to Vosh's attention and some other people. We'll raise some money. I'll make some national contacts. And then hopefully we'll be able to make that. Uh, that is a really good goal to, to ascertain. I think. That's oh, it's perfect because it can have a finite amount. Like I could tell you how much it would cost to get it up and running. And then it's the kind of thing that could kind of finance itself because on the days when it was not served, like showing up and doing like, you know, giveaways, we would use it and sell things from it to raise money for it. Our chat seems to agree. But with that said, we appreciate you all. Remember, tomorrow night, 8 o'clock, regular time. Today was an exception for our two wonderful guests. But tomorrow we go back to our regular form at 8 p.m. We will first be speaking with Nomiki Kantz, and then we will be speaking with Matthew Ho at 9. Appreciate you guys. We'll see you tomorrow night. Bye, all Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.